Um, welcome everyone. It's uh, Thursday. The week is almost over. Another um, another day in paradise. A lot of crazy things going on in markets. We have a great room today. Uh, Michael Belkin is in the house. Michael, I'm calling you up to the stage. Please unmute. Please meet yourself initially, and then when uh, it's time to talk, um, unmute yourself. Tom Thornton, and up there, Tony Greer. Gonna get a bunch of people up here. Wow. Yeah. Hey, Michael. Just just stand by. Just mute yourself for the time being until gotta go through the obligatory monologue. So just hang on. Uh, Tony okay. Greer, get you up here. Awesome. All right. So someone sent me a um, someone sent me a DM saying, "Do you ever do rooms on days when the market's up?" I guess they're accusing me of being a bear. Well, maybe I am. Uh, hey, Michael, just unmute yourself. Just mute yourself. I'm going to mute you. Hold on. I'm just going to mute you here. Okay. I always get feedback. Only one person speaking at a time. So, in any event, um, it, it was an update. It's been a couple updates. So, here you go. At any rate, uh, confusing markets, a lot of volatility. Um, a lot of the folks in the room have had this market nailed. I want to give a special shout out, though, to Tommy Thornton. I wanted to throw a tomato at him the other day when he said his. Uh, indicators were firming up for a, uh, a bounce. And then he annoyed me even more today. <laughs> he said, I forget, Tom, you'll speak to it later, but he said, you probably don't want to hear this, but I think the market's going to go higher. So what I like about all you guys, you call them like you see them. Uh, you don't stick to a narrative unlike yours truly. Um, so in any event, it's, it's important to not lose sight of the forest for the trees. Uh, we have John Roke in the house as well. John had that great statistic that we've tweeted out a few times. Then the 2000 to 2002 bear market, when and John can speak to it, despite NASDAQ falling uh, 80%, I think I got the numbers right, the market was up 46% of the trading days. I believe there were 10 rallies of over 15% and 15 rallies of over 10%. So bear markets are tricky. Nobody wins in a bear market. He who wins is he who loses the least. Um, and, and to that end, uh, I don't know, quite honestly, I love all you guys in the room, but if I had to pick the guy who got the bear markets most right, maybe because, I don't know, he's a sicko like me, it's our featured speaker today, Michael Belkin. So I can't think of a better time to have Michael uh, come on than now. He's had the playbook. Um, and it's really funny. I see it's, it's I, I can't tell you how much this puts a smile on my face. I look at the top of the room. And I see cross-border capital, Michael Howe, standing next to another Michael, Michael Belkin. And those two guys are good friends and know each other going way back. So what a, what a fabulous time to everyone reconnect. So this is just awesome. I mean, honestly, I look at the quality of this room. And again, there's no commercial benefit to yours. True, I do this because we're a community. We're trying to help each other. I mean, this is like murderer's row, just going across in no particular order. we got Thornton, Howe, Belkin. I go down to the second row. you got Greer. Third row, you got um, Roke, and then you got Jeff Garbaz who works at Phil Erlanger. I mean, it's just it's just nuts. I defy anybody to show me another room where you have so much talent in one place. I defy anyone to show me a conference where you can have so much talent in one place. And it's all free. So I salute each and every one of you. This is awesome. So crazy markets, a lot of cross currents. Um, I think it's multiple time frames. Um, people who want to throw tomatoes at me say, oh, so George, how do you like it? The market's gone up two or three days. And I'm like, ask Tom Thornton. He's got the playbook right now. But it's multiple time frames. I, I, I don't think you can lose sight of the big picture. 
uh, a shameless plug for Michael Hal, top of the room, cross-border capital. He's had the playbook. Maybe Michael Hal can weigh in a little bit later on. So, you know, it, it always was about liquidity. It is about liquidity. It always will be about liquidity. And the terrible events in the Ukraine and Eastern Europe are just a sideshow. And hopefully this goes away soon, but then we go back to our regularly scheduled programming, which is one of declining excess liquidity or declining Marshallian K, which is bad for risk assets. So at any rate, um, I could talk forever. Most of you know I talk too much, but I'm going to try to be quiet now. I want to introduce Michael Belkin, who I've known now for over 30 years. I've known Michael back to the time of the Solomon Brothers days, and Michael will be great when you start out if you just talk a little bit about your background and some of the characters that you worked with from uh, Solly back in the day. I mean, a lot of the younger generation, they weren't even alive when Solomon Brothers was around. But a lot of characters like, you know, Stanley Shopcorn and Gutfriend and, um, and Henry Kaufman and so on and so forth. Um, these are also legendary figures. And you had the privilege of working with these folks. And I'm sure they were uh, instrumental in shaping your thinking. Michael is, uh, unlike some of the faux gurus on FinTwit who come out with the rulers and crayons and can't even spell Fibonacci, he's the real deal. Uh, he's a Cal Berkeley statistics major. Um you know, he's, he's, he's involved very much in a Fourier time, time series analysis. So when he speaks, I mean, there's a lot of real uh, mental capital that goes into this. So he's one serious dude. He's probably, you know, in the 30, 40 years of my career, I can't think of anybody who's had a greater share of success on the dark side. Um, he's not a bull market operator. I'm saying that affectionately, Michael. Uh, but, you know, he calls him like he sees him. And it's just amazing how much of the time he's been right. Those that are in the community and in the investment community know Michael and know of Michael. He's a serious guy. Um, he has, you know, the elite of the elitist clients. Uh, he's maintained a very low profile. Uh, he lives in the Pacific Northwest. He can speak about where he lives if he wants to. But, Michael, why don't you start off just explain a little bit about, you know, your background, um, how you do what you do, how you look at the world, and then get into your view on markets and, you know, go as long as you want, 10, 15, 20 minutes, whatever. But, you know, we, we want to make this interactive. That's what makes this room so great. So, Michael, without any further ado, the floor is yours. You need to unmute yourself. Um, and the way okay. That, yeah, there you go. We, we got you. Go ahead, Michael. Well, welcome to Michael. Welcome. By the way, by the way, I'm saying this affectionately. Uh, I just want everyone to know <laughs> Michael's no different, whether it's Dennis Gartman or a whole bunch of other people. Like, Michael didn't even know what a Twitter spaces was last week when I called him and said, hey, you got to do this. And, I, and kudos, a big shout out to Michael for, 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 for actually getting a Twitter account. He just opened one up, I think, today. And this is his first experience. And Michael, I'm really impressed you've gotten something that works so easily. So any of that, Michael, the floor is yours. Ah, thank you, George. Hey, thanks for having me on here. Um, so uh, let me give a little bit of background. <clears throat> so those of you who don't know me know um, where I came from and what I do. So... Uh, I went to UC Berkeley Business School, uh, uh, and I was in the stat department doing independent research into forecasting. So I learned everything in the business school about econometrics, and it was kind of unsatisfying. My passion at the time was what makes markets go up and down and, and how to quantify that. And uh, I came up with some preliminary stuff. I was sponsored by Mark Rubenstein, who was chairman of the finance department in a bunch of research he was, he's the R and LOR of Leland O'Brien Rubenstein, who blew up the world with, um, you know, in 1987 crash. But he's a very, very smart guy and a, a mentor of mine. Anyways, um, I was 
here's an oddball story. I was recruited. I was flown back to New York by Larry Fink's team at First Boston at the time. <laughs> and um, I managed to finagle an interview with, with Laszlo Barini at Solomon Brothers. So I had two interviews in New York back in the day. And um, luckily, Laszlo really liked me. and It was a really good fit with Solomon. And the, the, the ironic thing is Larry Fink, now head of you know, BlackRock, uh, ended up blowing up for, at First Boston on a, in a, uh, on a mortgage back meltdown. So um, I kind of managed to sidestep that one. Uh, wh when I got into Solomon, Laszlo hired me. I was in market analysis and I was a quant. So I worked for Laszlo and I worked for a lot of other dif different people in the research department. So Bob Solomon was head of research. Uh, Kaufman was, you know, head of bonds. And so I was kind of just a grunt, you know, that I, I was able to do things quantitatively for these guys in the research department. Um, and all the time I was refining my model. So I had a really good programmer develop a system for me to backtest things. So I, I, I went over the territory and I backtested pretty much every kind of trading strategy you can think of, um, you know, multi-regression models, uh, uh, technical analysis, couldn't make it work um, quantitatively as a decision rule. Everything I did was, you know, percentage winning trades, percentage losing trades, average gain, average loss, expected value. And... Um, Long story short, I came up with this approach based on rates of change. So I have a sophisticated model that takes rates of change and gives a forecast uh, 12 periods ahead. So that's what I do, 12 period forecast. What does the model do? It gives direction, position, and intensity. Three things, direction, position, up, down, or unknown, position, beginning, middle, end, and confidence interval or intensity. So I'm looking for is in a forecast. Okay, Michael, and Michael, Michael, I want to interrupt you for one second. Are you moving around the house? Is it me or is it your reception? You were doing great until about a minute ago with the reception. Are you moving around? Uh, Michael? Is that there? Hello? Michael. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no. Hello, Michael? Oh, Michael, are you there? I'm sorry, this room's gotten messed up. Are you there, Michael? Hello. 
can I, a hold on a second here, Mike, Michael? Hold on one second. Uh, Mount Cox, could you come up and co-host, please? All right, Michael, can you hear me? Okay. Hello. Hello, can you hear me? Yeah, I think we had a problem there. I'm not sure where we lost you. So, um, I'm, I apologize for that. We've we've we had a problem here. Why don't you just backtrack? About, I'm not sure what I, I heard you up to the point where you were talking about you were working at Solid and you were back testing stuff, and then and the connection blew up. So I apologize for that. So why don't you just rewind about 60 seconds? Okay. All right. Sorry about that, everybody. Um, uh, so I developed a model that gives a forward forecast of direction, position, and intensity. Um, so direction up, down, or neutral, position, beginning, middle, end, and intensity or confidence interval. So everything I do is looking forward 12 periods, mostly using weekly data and also monthly data. So a 12-period weekly forecast the next three months, and a 12-period monthly forecast is the next year. So that's my focus. Next three months, that's a quarter, and next 12 months, year. And I'm looking for the strongest signals. And so I have this service, the Belkin Report, and my clients are, you know, big hedge funds and institutions all over the world, billionaire family offices. And um, I advise them based on probability, saying, here's what's likely to happen going forward in all the different asset classes. So I use stock indexes, bonds, foreign exchange, a particular emphasis on sector rotation. And I find sector rotation is very important for the direction of the market for for when the risky stuff has an outperformed signal like tech then the market usually goes up when the risky stuff has an underperformed signal the market usually goes down and that helps reinforce my view on the market also um the uh defensive stuff when the defensive stuff has an outperformed signal that's usually a bear sign for the market and uh when the defensive signal wants to underperform, that's usually a bullish sign for the market. So that's sort of an overview of what I do. Now, let me give you my view, my current view of what has happened. So also, I, I, uh, I put this together with a narrative. So I'm also an investment strategist. So it's not just a black box, black, whoop, black box thing. It's, um, it's how do the pieces of the puzzle fit together? So I am... Uh, uh, let's think about where we are and how we got here. So going into the 2020 virus crash, my model was pointing down. So the virus surfaced, the market went down, you know, 30% or something. Um, I, I covered my shorts. The model turned bullish pretty close to the bottom. I was bullish for about a year or so. And then the market was making this long involved top uh, last year. And what happened was um, in the sector rotation, all the cloud software stocks, which were the largest holdings of a very aggressive hedge funds and momentum funds, as you probably are aware, they started going down. So all these things like DocuSign and Zoom and Shopify, um, at different points, they begin to crack and go down. So that was my biggest short position last six months of last year. And then um, where are we now? The NASDAQ peaked on November 19th. So that was a long time ago, right? Four months ago. As of today, the NASDAQ is down 15% from its peak. Uh, and the S&P is down 8% from its peak as of today's close. My target for this decline is the 200-week average. And let me explain how I get that. Um, 
Yeah, you know, Mike, Mike, Michael. Just let me interrupt. For those of you that are that haven't looked, Michael graciously uh, sent some uh, e- uh, uh, graphs over to me. And if you go into my Twitter feed, you can uh, you you can see the graphs that Michael's going to be referring to. So, Michael, I did tweet out those charts you sent me. If you just want to refer to them, yeah, great. Everybody should take a look at those. So, um, trend analysis is something else I do. So. The model doesn't give you a magic number the market's supposed to go to. It just gives direction, position, intensity. Um, I use trend analysis, real simple, not, you know, Elliott waves or any, uh, anything like that. Um, I, just simple, where, where are equilibrium levels that the market wants to go to? And I find the 200-period averages are very significant, um, particularly the long-term ones, 200-week average and 200-month averages. And so the market, you know, a bull market is a process of going away from trend, uh, you know, above the 200-week average. And then a bear market usually consists of going back to the vicinity of the 200-week average. And that can happen just not just in stock indexes, but individual stocks and also all kinds of weird ratios. I spend most of my time looking at ratios of this sector to the S&P or this group to that, all those kind of things. And it, it works, you know, across all different asset classes and ratios. Anyways, long story short, the Na- my NASDAQ target, the direction of the NASDAQ is down now. Monthly, just starting. So next 12 months down, okay? The, we just started. We're down 15%. We're going down big. Um, the 200-week average is down 26% from here, where we are today. So that's my NASDAQ target, down 26%. S&P, down 22%. And the general time frame is May. So where's the market's bounced the last few days? Um, <laughs> I learned one thing. Uh, <laughs> when I was in, I, I was moved into prop trading at Solomon Brothers for the last year or two I was there. And I developed this model. And I, you know, my boss at that time was Stanley Shopcorn who was head of um, equities, vice chairman of the firm. And we were doing what Meriwether and those guys were doing on the bond side. It was, of course, a bond house, and we were doing it with much less capital, but basically directional risk trading um, on global markets. And so my model turned bearish at the end of 1989. I went into Stanley, and I said, I pound, literally pounded on the desk with my fist, and I said, Stanley, this is the top of the Japanese market, which it did turn out to be. So anyways, we shorted a lot of Nikkei futures. We got, uh, you know, he came on board. He, he was seeing the same thing as me, and, uh, you know, we had a we had agreement. And But... It was so difficult trading the bear market down. Like today, for instance, you know, the market's been up three days, NASDAQ's up having these back-to-back 2% moves. Um, And uh, that is, I remember sitting there trading, we were were running this huge position of thousands of of short Nikkei futures, and it was painful. And Stanley is like an itch, you know, kind of itchy trader. Well, you think it's going to bounce? I don't want to, you know, I I think, Stanley, keep them on, keep them on. Point A to point B. Point B is way down there, the 200-week average. So anyways, it worked. Um, it, was, it was a battle. I remember having to sit through these 5% moves. You know, you get these in the bear markets, you can get generally three-day moves. That's what we had the last three days. By the way, I just looked at the short-term stuff, and it looks terrible. Like, um, we're looking for a big reversal in global markets uh, after this three-day move. So I don't think this is a bottom, a tradable bottom. Yeah, if you're a short-term trader, it's been a great move. If you've been short, it's painful. But I think the, uh, we're headed down. We're headed a lot lower. And um, rather than follow the my human emotions, which tell me when it's going down, oh, God, it's crashing. i got to get short. i got to cover. 
for all my lungs to go short in the hole. It bounces up my face. And then when it bounces up, my human emotions are, oh, it's over. It's time to buy. Oh, let's get back in. Let's cover our shorts. So that's where I think we are in the latter case. We've had this dance. Uh, it's been short covering. Shorts are getting hurt. There's pain. And they feel like covering. But that's the time when you should be selling and boarding. And when you're in the hole, the time you should look out because they that's when they can really stick it to you. So... Um, that's what I did uh, at Solomon. I, I was in prop trading. I developed this model. And then I left. Um, Solomon kind of blew up. And I left and I started the Belkin Report in 1992. And oddly enough, <laughs> George Noble was my first client <laughs> at, uh, at, at his hedge fund in Boston. And I remember driving up there. I was known. This was in 1992. I was known at the time for being bearish. And I'm not a perma-bearer. You know, I catch these bottoms too, as well as the tops, long-term, most of the long-term ones. So I remember driving up to Boston in my old diesel Mercedes, chugging up there with this huge black box. I didn't even have a laptop at that time, lugging it up the elevator to George's office and giving him this presentation saying, look, George, the Nikkei's bottomed. It's going up. <laughs> and he was like, oh, no, no, of course not. This is the end of the world. So Anyways, that, that, that was my first client. ended up being a good call. It was close to the bottom of, of the Japanese market. So let me, let me just give an overview of what my strongest signals are now, long-term. So I, going from the sectors, XAU Gold Stock Index. So I consider that a sector, sort of it's really a group, but I, I run it in my sectors. XAU divided by the S&P 500 monthly. Direction up, position beginning now, intensity strong as it gets. That's relative. So that's XAU divided by S&P. Absolute. So I run everything relative, absolute. Absolute XAU up strong, huge, just starting. So next 12 months, gold stocks want to go up. That's the strongest signal of anything. Number two, energy, XLE. Energy sector ETF divided by S&P 500. Direction up, but it's been there for a while. It's not as early as gold. And um, we're sort of like halfway through the move. Um, and it's up absolute too. So the two, if you want to have longs, my best long ideas are gold stocks and energy stocks. Uh, and where that fits into anyone else's consensus estimates, I, I don't know, consensus sentiment. Um, some people are, you know, Warren Buffett's buying Occidental Petroleum, things like that. But um, I, I'm hearing one, I had a conference call today where a, a hedge fund client told me that he's hearing hedge funds are actually shorting energy stocks because they think the rally's overdone. I, other than for short-term trading, I think that's a very bad idea. So, um, and of the two things, gold wants to outperform energy. So if you're going to pick one, XAU over energy, but both of them together, you know, that, that could change over, you know, over short-term. Um, and then sec, uh, silver relative to gold also has an outperform forecast. So you generally when gold goes up, silver outperforms, and we're setting up for that. And um, by the way, so I have one, I have two products, the Belkin Report, which is an institutional high-end thing for, you know, hedge funds, institutional money managers, mutual funds, family offices, stuff like that. Um, and then I also have a gold stock report. And um, so about five years ago, I accumulated a database of all the investable a gold and silver mining stocks that are listed in the U.S., Canada, London, Johannesburg, 
uh, Australia and China. And I started following them. And there's, it's not really an efficient market. That's one reason I like it. Like, it's not really followed as closely. Every, you know, there's a million analysts following a- Apple and tech stocks and everything. And, and um, they, they really slice and dice things to bits. Uh, there's these gold stocks are kind of, there's a lot more, um, uh, there's a lot more volatility. And there's some of them are, are just out of sync with the others a- as a group. So um, what, the reason I bring this up is, um, Silver stocks, there's very few semi-pure play silver stocks. There's only about 25 or 30. And I, I can, those are investable ones, right? I don't consider uh, moose, what I call moose pasture. You know, um, things that are just pure speculation. Vancouver, I do have a few Vancouver and a lot of Toronto stocks in my database. But these are all stocks that have some legitimate reason. They have a legitimate business. So, and there's not very many of them. And... Um, I I want to point out that over the years, the best performance I've seen among any of my clients has have been in those who bought things that were deep value, those things that were down 90%. So I'll give you one little story about that. Um, a client of mine, uh, back in the day, uh, in the 2000, 2002 bear market, I'd been short Ask Jeeves. Remember that one, symbol ASK? At the time, I believe it was. Um, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yep. yeah. Yeah. So that one crashed. I went down 90-something percent, right? And I was, I'd was i been shorted in the model all the way down. I was feeling really proud of myself. Oh, wow. What a great short. And this client told me he was buying it. I said, what? Are you kidding? This piece of junk is going bankrupt. He said, oh, no. The business is changing. They're, you know, they're going to be running ads. They'll get huge cash inflows. So this guy was a fundamentalist. But um, he's also a you know technical guy, but really look at things from a fundamental perspective. And so anyways, long story short, he loaded up the boat on that thing, literally, and it made a huge position in it. And it went up, I don't know how many tens of times or something. And um, he's got one of the biggest yachts of anybody I know at the moment. And he parlayed that into you know, farms. He bought, ended up buying farms and stuff around the world and stuff around the U.S. But... Um, so the lesson of that, I learned that, and I've learned other things from him, but basically when you get something that goes down 90%, if it's not going to zero, the percentage changes that you get off the bottom, if you can get in close to the bottom and the thing doesn't go bust, can be enormous, you know, 10 bag, tw- 10 bagger, 20 bagger. So um, the reason I relate that is these silver stocks, there are some on my recommended list in the gold stock report that are like that. They're down 70, 80, 90%. And I have this huge upward signal for silver and for the silver group. And yet there are these stocks and they're penny stocks. Like it's not, they're not stocks that you could buy as a multi-billion dollar fund. So that's the problem. These are more personal accounts. I'm not going to mention them on the air because I own some of them and I don't want to, you know, I don't know what the rules are, but I, I can just tell you. No, my, my, um, no, my, 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 my. Michael, you're right on that. Michael, let me ask you this, because, by the way, we have over 700 people in the room. So you've made it clear you like the gold stocks, the energy stocks, and you like the silver stocks. But in in the market, you're looking for significant downside. What are the areas of of, of leadership on the downside? What are the parts of the market that you're most negative on, Michael? Okay. um, It had been cloud software, as I said. But the, again, getting back to de- direction and position intensity of the model, it's late in that down move. It's not over, uh, but things like Shopify, 
uh, data dog. I, you know, I, there's like 60, 70 of these things, which are, by the way, in the portfolio of one of the major top hedge funds, which is down 20, 30% on the year. I just went and looked at their portfolio and that's all their holdings. I can't believe it. I mean, yeah, there's a time to buy those things. It was early last year and maybe after the, in, in May, but not yet. So what, to answer your question, in my uh, forecast, the ones that haven't fallen yet, the generals, um, those are the ones that are the best shorts at this level. I don't think you can get squeezed. So for instance, Tesla, I know that's a painful one <laughs> for some people. Uh, it, it's, been, it's been a rough short for years and years and years. And I was, a, I was part of a short sellers group, which shall remain nameless, where that was one of the favorite short picks you know, five, six years ago. And it, it absolutely crucified the shorts. No, I'm not picking on anybody, but I'm just pointing out at that time, I believe Tesla had short interest of 20, 30%. Oh, guess what the short interest is now? 2.9%, nothing. Um, it's Tesla's been bouncing around the 200-day average. As of today, it's down 29% from its peak, which sounds like a lot, but the 200-week average is down 59%. And so I think Tesla's just bouncing around around its 200-day average. Um, it's not shorted anymore. And if you look at um, Fidelity has this uh, retail traders um, website where you can see the number of trades that they have on their brokerage site of people who are buying and selling tesla's always a buy there and i mean no matter what happens like that's one of the top people so in other words it's a retail favorite there are no shorts anymore the model forecast is down it hasn't fallen yet as much as the market and it has huge downside so a couple others like that apple Anybody short Apple? <laughs> I don't think so. 0.7% short interest. Just to you know, give you an idea, VXX, the volatility ETF, which is kind of blowing up, it, uh, last, at last count, it had 87% short interest. Hello? So this, they, they, they just suspended creation of this thing um, because probably because they couldn't make any more because they're exceeding capacity of the futures that they hedge it with or something. I don't really know. They didn't say. But that's an example of something that could have a short squeeze, something with 87% of the shares borrowed and sold short. So Apple is like 0.7%. 200-week average, down 42%. So these are my best short ideas. Tesla, Apple. Here's another one. NVIDIA, NVDA. 1.2% short interest, 200-week average down 55%. Yeah, my, 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 Michael, it's absolutely mind-boggling. I mean, and by the way, just, just to repeat for everyone, none of this is investment advice. Um, do your own work. I'm going to be very clear about that. And Michael, you know, wants to keep it a high level, doesn't really want to get into too many specific names. Um, he's given us a couple examples. He has some very large cap names, but um, so you know, do your own yeah. work. So, uh, so Michael, yeah. let's get away from the specifics of the market. Just a couple of questions, and I want to open up to the room. So, you've been doing this for a long time, and you know the market structure's changed. The turnover of the market's crazy now. I forget the stock market. You know, the average holding period used to be uh, ten years. Now it's like ten days or ten months or something crazy like that. Hyperactive trading, program trading, a lot of index funds, not so many active managers. Uh, you trade in, in pennies and tenths of a pennies instead of you know ace and quarters, whatever. So market structure has changed, but has that caused? How's that if if at all? 
has that caused you to change your approach or have you changed your approach? Have you evolved over the last 30 years? In other words, we go back to the finally, I remember that day we were lugging that, you know, big black computer around, you're going to break your back with that thing. How does your approach change now versus 30 years ago? Or are the basic principles still the same? And it's just, you know, a couple little bells and whistles here and there. Uh, good question. So the model is exactly the same. So I've never changed anything. You know, this is, goes back to my days back at Berkeley and Solomon. And um, so I, I run exactly the same model. Uh, nothing, no, it was optimized and everything uh, back in the day. Now, what has changed over the years is, well, I have to say, first of all, let's talk about hedge funds. So hedge fund mafia, that was the term I affectionately used to my first clients, who George was one of them, and then you can imagine who the other household names were back in the '90s. Um, those were my—they'd known me from my Solomon days because I used to—I used to fax out charts. I got away with murder basically uh, at Solomon because it was a it's kind of a wolf pack corporate culture where you you could, as Lazo told me uh, when he hired me, he said, "We'll give you a rope. You can either um, make a ladder or hang yourself." And I, I tried to make a ladder, but um, it wasn't the kind of a uh, bureaucratic place where you had you had to request permission and requisition and everything, and I, so I used to fax out these little charts when the Nikkei was crashing of Japanese guys kind of jumping off these triangles and committing harikari. But anyways, so I was known for um, uh, for the call on Japan. So I, I had a lot of these hedge fund clients at first, um, and then oh, gradually I realized that these guys were sort of colluding. Because the lieutenants would call me and say, they were basically all in the same trades at the same time. And what I found was at turning points, they were all wrong. So my model was saying, so my model is looking for turning points a lot of times. It's trying to buy low, sell high. It's a momentum thing. Maybe it catches the momentum, you know, when something's moving. But generally, I'm picking turning points, like tops in the market, bottoms in the market. And at all these inflection points, the hedge fund mafia was frequently just completely wrong. Like, I remember in 1994, it came into the Fed rate hike cycle, completely long bonds, and get, got crucified. So it, it, there's this groupthink mentality where everybody gangs up on the same trade. So I've seen that over and over, and it's been some of my best calls, but that looked terrible at, at first um, because uh, – what I'm saying is completely different than what everybody else is doing, and they may go on a little bit further. So taking that um, one step further, what we have now is flows. So I've started following flows. I have, um, you know, I've been doing this for years, actually. So I, I have Refinitiv Mutual Fund ETF flows. And um, that has been stronger. You know, if one thing I've been wrong on, it's been when the flows overwhelmed with the model. Sometimes the model was looking for a turning point, and these flows would just continue endlessly. But I have those topping now. So I think we're on the, there hasn't really been outflows yet, just barely. It's just the inflows have slowed down. There's been a few weeks of mild outflows, nothing major. But forecast direction down, intensity strong. So I think the market is looking for an excuse to get scared and for people to sell. So that's something that's changed. Um, flows. Uh, so, and why are these people, I keep asking myself, why are these people keep buying stocks? So yeah, you know, the Fed did QE, but that's over. The Fed cut rates dramatically. That's over. 
why are they still staying at the party? You know, like this is hello. This is the the party is over, you know, and they're running out of chairs, musical chairs. And yet these the people, the re, these are retail investors, right? These are not hedge funds so much. Or who knows who's buying the ETFs. It could be intervention too. You never know. Um, some central bank, of course, they have uh, futures markets accounts and they, you know, Swiss bank trades stocks. So I don't want to get too conspiratorial and you don't know the idea. I have no inside information or direct knowledge of anything. But I That's do know... Yeah, um, go one ahead, one thing. Go ahead. Keep going. Go ahead. One thing I do remember. I can. I suppose I can. Sh I can share this now, but um, back on the desk at Solomon, I you know I was in prop trading. I was also on the client desk. In those days, you could kind of go back and forth. It wasn't a conflict. And I remember in down markets, the government of Singapore used to come in and sell thousands and thousands of puts, and I, and through our desk. And I was saying what. But if, in case you don't, I, you know, most of the people listening to this probably understand you sell puts into a down market. That makes the market stop going down if the position's large enough. So, and other hedge funds would do that. So, I mean, that's if you're in a correction in a bull market, that makes sense, you know, as a trade. But if you're trying to intervene to prevent the market doing what it would like to do in terms of crashing, then, you know, that's the hallmark. When you see like, um, a, a major major put sales naked puts selling of naked puts huge positions that's the sign of intervention so that's what's happened the um the volatility index has become sort of the tail that wags the dog so the VIX futures and the VXX ETF and if you watch these things like people have shorted that's why there's 87% short interest in the VXX volatility ETF the game has been sell volatility and it makes the market go up. And if you put those two things side by side on the screen, VIX futures or VXX and the S&P on a daily, I mean, on a minute by minute chart, you see usually it's the volatility moves first. So um, you get to the point where vol people are short volatility up the wazoo until it doesn't work anymore. And then there's a huge short squeeze and the market crashes. So that's why I think we are. One other point on that is margin debt. So margin debt expanded um, but enormously, it was not like a, um, uh, I don't have the numbers right in front of me, but be, after the Fed uh, started doing QE in March 2020, margin debt went up he enormously, huge. So people leveraged into this and um, margin debt peaked in October. Now, remember the NASDAQ peaked in November, November 19th. And I have direction down, intensity strong, position just starting, monthly margin debt. So... Put that together with the downward, uh, you know, the f outflows are going to start, margin debt liquidation. And, and if you've lived through a few cycles, as most, you know, as George and I have here, you see deleveraging. That's what the market's in for. So prices go down. You get a margin call. Somebody gets a margin call. They have to sell the stock. that drives the price down. Somebody else gets a margin call, and the thing feeds on itself. So, and it doesn't mean the market goes straight down in a crash, but there's a process of until margin debt is liquidated. And so that's why I think we are and deleveraging. And one other point I'd like to make real quickly: um, LTCM. So the Meriwether, right? Blew up September 23rd was the uh, 1998 was the bailout of them. They were long a bunch of Russian securities, and Russia defaulted in August, one month before that, 1998. So I have financials 
turning down. Now, a lot of people are bullish on financials because, oh boy, Fed's raising interest rates, higher interest rates are good for financials, blah, blah, blah. Not me. I have brokers, money-centered banks, and European banks in particular as underperform and sells. So you have a lot of these European banks, SockGen, Russian Exposure, and uh, Unicredit. There's all, you know, Vienna, uh, Austrian banks, Hungarian banks. Um, <clears throat> but uh, I think we have yet to discover where the defaults are going to be. So all these sanctions, you know, the war is bad enough. All these sanctions have done things that have made um, defaults very possible and very likely. And we don't know where the bodies are buried yet. So I think um, looking forward, I think financials are very vulnerable to surprises out of left field, kind of in a 2008 sort of thing where Bear Stearns win and when, you know, Lehman Brothers. It was one thing after another. I'm not saying it's going to be exactly like that, but something similar, something that resembles that, where some bank doesn't get paid, then it defaults. And in the derivative world, this can be very serious, right? So there's who knows what's out there in over-the-counter derivative world. So I don't want to, um, you know, just I, I would be very cautious about financials at this stage, brokers, money-centered banks, European banks, things like that. Right. That's great, Michael. All right. So let's so let's just pause right there. Just to reset the room, uh, we've got Michael Belkin of the Belkin Report. He's been in the market for over 30 years, uh, made his more than his fair share of outsized uh, calls, particularly on the on the on the bear side as the top title of the room says. He called the tops in 2000, 2007, 2020 in Japan way back uh, in 1990. I was there. I was a client, so I can attest to this. Uh, if, and he's referenced a few charts that are in my Twitter feed that Michael provided. Michael, you have some friends in the room, um, and Steve, please mute yourself. Uh, we have some friends. You have some friends in the room, Michael. Um, to your immediate, just to the side of you, is the chart life. It's John Roke, and then above you in the upper right hand corner is Cross Border Capital. It's your good friend Michael Howe. So um, I'd like those two guys to go first. In deference to time zone differences, uh, I think it might be past Michael's bedtime. I'm not sure. But Michael Howell, if you're there, would like to uh, speak up and say and, and talk to Michael. I don't know the last two, you two, you two, the last two times you guys were together, but Michael Howell, my good friend, good to see you. Michael Belkin, Michael Howell, Michael Belkin, Michael Howell, have at it. Great. Hi. Um, hi, Michael. Great, hey, great Michael. talk. Enjoyed it enormously. Um, agree with everything you said. Uh, we we shared a time at Salomon Brothers together uh, back about uh, 25 years ago. So uh, good to hear you again. Um, the one thing we've got in common, both sides of the Atlantic, is that it's St. Patrick's Day. So uh, I'm going <laughs> to find a bar soon. So I'm not going to be hanging around here too long. But um, what I'd say is that, you know, I come at this from a very different angle, but it basically overlays the lines with exactly uh, what Mike Belkin has been saying. Uh, what we look at is liquidity flow. That's what I learned when I was at Salomon Brothers uh, from the, you know, from the feet of Henry Kaufman and Marty Leibowitz. And we look at that in terms of the implications for fixed income markets. Fixed income markets are the truth. Uh, equities uh, flutter around at different times. They can't make their mind up. But uh, you'll see the truth in the fixed income markets. And what they're saying right now endorses everything that Mike Belkin has said and everything you're getting from liquidity. Liquidity is going down. Uh, the Fed is squeezing it. Uh, the People's Bank of China are not putting liquidity in, as some people claim. And what we've got is a free fall of liquidity. And that is why you're seeing this pickup in volatility. It's why you're looking at the yield curve flattening 
viciously. Uh, and basically, it's why uh, I would begin to be thinking about buying fixed income right now, uh, buying the 10-year bond. I just don't think the Fed is in a position to be able to raise interest rates along the lines that are being slated here. Uh, the economy is too fragile. It looks as if it's actually withering right now. And the equity markets have bought into the narrative of the Fed that the economy is amazingly robust. Uh, the bond market is telling you a very, very different story. Interesting. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Hi, Michael. Um, I, I'm in keeping with you. I have a tenant. I was short uh, bonds, U.S. and global bonds. I covered that a couple of weeks ago and I am looking for a bounce, too. It hasn't happened yet. It's been I'm wondering, you know, what's what's going on. But the the yield curve is definitely flattening like crazy. And um, I don't think most, you know, in my conversations with people, they can't conceptually get around the idea that bonds could bounce when the Fed is raising interest rates. That's just not in the toolbox, the mental toolbox of a, of a lot of people, except for some very shrewd, a few very shrewd fixed income clients of mine are on board. Um, wait, Michael, what about Chinese uh, government bonds? Do you, do you have a view on those? Well, it's one of the areas, actually, that we, we quite like Chinese bonds. I and mean, I think there's a big question mark over what is going on in China. In China. But at the end of the day, um, you know, the elephant in the room, as far as we see, is what's happening to the yuan uh, US dollar cross rate, the renminbi, if you like. Uh, and basically, the Chinese seem to be holding that or targeting policy to hold that at a constant level. So it looks as if actually liquidity in China is being driven um, by the by the currency, by the renminbi. Uh, that's what they're doing. Uh, they're intervening in the markets to try and stabilize the renminbi. That's what uh, Chinese policy historically has done during times of tension. And if that's correct, uh, you could be seeing uh, the Chinese bond rallying and actually maybe being a lead indicator of uh, U.S. Treasuries. By the way, if I could just jump in, um, Michael Howell, our good mutual friend, uh, Ken Swang. I don't know if he's in the room right now. If he is, I'd like him to come up and speak. But you and I were talking about Ken the, the other day. And Ken Swang appeared in this room a couple of months ago. As we all know, he follows Asian markets very carefully. And he just messaged me yesterday the very exact point you were making just now, Michael Howell, that he's got a very watchful eye on the Chinese uh, bond yield. And the presages, as just as you're saying, declines and, and, and yields elsewhere. And so he's on high alert right now. He, he, he called that very correctly earlier in the year. And he's saying be very, very afraid right now. So I think you're spot on, Michael Howell. And, you know, it's, it's unbelievable. You two guys do things completely differently, but you kind of come to the same place. It's just spectacular. And um, no, it's, uh, that, that, that's wonderful. Um, so, Michael Howell, just hang there because I'm sure you'll have some questions. People have been in this room a couple times. People are very grateful for your contributions. John Roke, if you're available and listening or not stuck on, a, on, on Metro North or somewhere, um, I know you're, you You know Michael Belkin from way back. Welcome, John. Always good to see you. Michael Belkin, uh, our, our good mutual friend, John Roke. John, the floor is yours. Thanks, George. Hey, Michael. John Roke, good to hear your voice and good to hear your views. It's been a long time. Yes. Yeah, good to hear your voice too, John. Thank you. I have, uh, I have two questions for you. I heard your comments about gold. I'm, I'm happy to hear them, and I'm happy to hear them about gold equities as well. Would you extend those comments about commodities broadly and commodity-related equities broadly? That's the first question. And the second question is, did you and George and anybody else who wants to jump in find it remarkable in the last few days that 
commodities corrected sharply, of course, chiefly oil and gold, and that um, investors were quick to uh, abandon them uh, and equally quick to embrace the uh, tech bounce. So um, just to repeat, uh, did, did your call on gold and gold equities extend to commodities broadly and other commodity-related equities? And how do you think about the pullback in commodities relative to the sentiment there and the bounce in tech compared to the sentiment there? And thanks a lot. Thanks, George. I'll mute myself and I'll just wait for Michael to reply. Thank you. Um, yeah, John, uh, two good questions. So um, I've been long. It, so, I, you know, page five of the Belkin report has all the positions that the model says in all the different asset classes. So I've been long energy, grains, precious metals, base metals, uh, not so much softs. Um, actually, no softs anymore. Um, but remember, direction, position, intensity, some of these are, these are not fresh signals. So they're more like holds for longs, base metals and things like that. And we saw these fireworks in nickel where it goes doubles and then they shut the LME metals exchange. They go out trading. Um, but um, energy continues to be a long for me. And I'd, I'd like to bring, point out something that you said. So um, open interest in the Brent crude futures contract has declined by 17% in a month from 2.3 million to 1.9 million contracts. So um, the volatility is too much for people to handle. You know, so what, it, it went up to 125 or something, went down to, to 100. You can't maintain a long, you know, specs who were long have been eliminated. So I think, um, I think there's a fundamental case. I'm not a fundamentalist, but obviously if you read the headlines, there, there's going to be a scramble for oil supplies with Russia cut out of the market until that situation is resolved. So I still like energy. The, uh, it looks to me like the spec longs are gone or, you know, at least severely reduced. Um, actually, you know, the, it's down 30%. They're down 17% in a month, down 30% in a year. So um, I, I consider that to be positive when something's not driven by the specs, you can get this from the Commitments of Traders report, of course. Um, when it's driven more by fundamental demand, it's not so, you know, so dicey where they could get cold feet. If somebody's got to buy, they got to buy. If they need a tanker full of oil, you know, in Shanghai or or somewhere, you know, um, India, uh, et cetera. So, yeah, still like oil, but it's not a fresh signal. And um, gold, what was the second question again? Sorry, uh, Gold. So I want I, I was so um, I wanted to know I wanted to ask you if you thought that the sentiment was a little screwy here for commodities and commodity related equities is that in that with oil and gold coming off sharp sharply investors dismissed them as opportunities to buy on pullbacks yet they embraced the buy the tech on the bounce opportunity yeah yeah absolutely so I can uh, again. Let me answer that in two ways. So the model forecast remains down for tech, late for cloud software, or not, or not late for FANG stocks. Um, it's still up strongly for energy and, and, uh, and gold mining and silver mining stocks in particular. Um, and so I had uh, one of my clients is a, is a large hedge fund. 
Um, and all the, it's weird. Like some, some people from the Belkin report, all they care about are the, I have a news clipping page, uh, a press clips page at the beginning where I kind of paint a narrative. I have 10 or 12, 15 stories uh, and how it fits into what the model is saying. And usually it's contrarian to what, um, you know, what the headlines and Bloomberg or something are saying. So I have to, I dig for the diamonds in the rough, you know, needle in the haystack. Um, so anyways, this one client, that's, some clients say they don't even read that. They don't care about this one client. That's one of the main only things they read in the Belka report because they want to know what everybody else is thinking and, um, and do the opposite at extremes. Not, you know, not all the time, but um, so I just had a conversation with that, that client today and um, on this subject. And um, he was, you know, he was wondering if, if, uh, if tech stocks, if people were, the pain trade is up for tech stocks, which it obviously has been for the last three days. And I, I related to him, another client's contact comment to me about a week or so ago saying, don't you think it's time to buy the cloud software stocks? So instead of, um, he was assuming that they're, they're covering their shorts, um, it, you, you, you know, that covering shorts will make tech stocks go up. That was my um, hedge, first hedge fund client's comment. The uh, the other guy who is down, like um, basically, you, you know, let's let's be clear here. Hedge, it's not a great year for hedge funds. You know, they're down 10, 20, 30%, depending on the one, not all, you know, in general, not everybody. But um, it's difficult to make it back when you're in the hole. And um, so rather than him being short, the second client, having been short, successfully short tech stocks and getting squeezed on them, he's already down some and wondering if it's time to buy them. So to me, that's the wrong psychology. Like, uh, you know, uh, the, the first client also said, you know, if you're down 30% in your hedge fund, you got to go up 50% to get back to your high water mark to start making a performance fee. So that's the, I, I think people are in a vice here, hedge funds where, They've cut back exposure, but they've been on the wrong side of the tech decline. And um, they're still holding, but they still have these positions. I haven't seen evidence of a complete capitulation in tech. A partial, yes. yeah, because these cloud stocks are down significantly. Right. But, well, well, yeah, Michael, let me interrupt. And, and John, maybe you could weigh in. You, do, you two of you guys go back and forth here. Um, John, you made the observation the other day that the ARC funds, I think it taken and Kathy would have taken in, I don't know, it was 850 million bucks or a billion bucks in a period of five or six weeks. I mean, these are things that you don't see at a bottom. And it goes along with what you're talking before about, um, you know, Michael, your observation about commitment of traders and energy going down. And in fact, if we get Jeff Garbaz to come up here, um, he's in the audience. I'd like him to come up because he was speaking about the short, uh, short interest data the other, the other week and how, um, you know, the only sector, that, that people were shorting on the way up was energy. So it, it just it just confirms everything the two of you are saying. I mean, J John, could you just elaborate about the behavior that you, you were talking about the inflows into the ARC funds? Could you, do you have the statistics to hand or, or also just maybe relate some of the conversations you've had with institutional clients? Of course, we keep the names anonymous during the Federal Witness Protection Program, but maybe just, maybe just provide a little more context to sentiment. I think that would really add to the conversation, John. Okay, so through the end of last week, the ARC funds had seen five straight weeks 
of positive inflows. That was even with, of course, ARC going down in price. And so I had thought that that's not the sort of um, things that you see at market bottoms. You know, at market bottoms, you don't see any inflows and um, nobody wants to be a buyer. So I thought it was a little strange. And I thought that the, you know, kind of ARC cult was still, um, you know, battered, but still very much alive. And then, you know, it's it's been true. And I think perhaps everybody on here might likely agree. Perhaps Michael would agree most readily in that. I think that the most of the energy move that occurred initially was not driven by institutional investors. It was driven by retail investors. And that's a that's indeed a compliment. And it was not driven by institutional investors because most institutional investors uh, would tell you that they have an ESG mandate of which energy companies do not make that mandate. And number two is the energy group had been so small as a percentage of the S&P 500 that perhaps they needed one stock at most to make their relative market cap weighting um, in energy uh, sufficient enough. This, it's also similar. Um, now, Freeport McMoran uh, from the COVID low through, um, you know, quite recently had been up about 600% had beaten Microsoft, had beaten many of the FANG stocks. And uh, in speaking with institutional clients, you know, that's probably the one of the only, if not the only, stock owned in the natural resource space. There's no way that a, an institutional money manager owns Freeport, Billiton, Rio, Glencore, Anglo, uh, you know, uh, Alcoa. There's just no way that they own all of them. And so I think most of the advance has not been enjoyed by institutional investors, but has been enjoyed by, and good for them, you know, retail investors or perhaps people who are not doing it on an institutional basis. So I think the sentiment continues to be screwed up. And I think that the commodity bull market, as evidenced by the breakout in the Bloomberg Commodity Spot Index, says that pullbacks should be bought in the commodities and commodity-related equities. And right, so, so that was the, that was the yeah. reason for my question to Michael. All right. So now it's really stir the pot. We have, we, we, we have uh, Jeff Garbaz from uh, Quantitative Partners, works with, works with Phil Erlanger. Jeff is probably the foremost uh, authority um, on uh, short interest and, and shorting. He's a great technician and market analyst. But I think Jeff would be particularly interesting if you were to contribute your perspective from what you see in the short interest data on, 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 on energy and sectors and technology and maybe just sort of, you know, look through, through your lens that you, the way you look at markets. What are you seeing adding to what Michael Belkin and John Rook were just saying? Yeah. So, um, and George, you heard this from me earlier, but I'm going to, I'm going to focus on this idea we have. We call it the, uh, the long short tsunami. And uh, George, I'm going to add in some more stuff I was thinking about after we talked as well with regard to this. So, the biggest problem with hedge funds, and, and Michael, after I get done with this, I'd love to hear your uh, thoughts on the difference between a hedge fund in 2010 and a hedge fund in 2022 and how stuff has evolved. But let, let's go through this idea of the, of the long, short squeeze. What happens typically, why hedge funds lose money a lot is because either in a given week, their long, their long names go down a lot more than their shorts go down. Like that happened the, uh, the week of January 7th. The, the, the strongest names went down like 5%, and the, and the weakest names only went down 2%. So hedge funds then lose 
And we had a week like that in February where it was the opposite, where the longs went up like 2%, but the names that were heavily shorted went up like 4%. So now, now they're losing money because their shorts went up at too great a rate. And we're in, we're in the same situation again this week. Um, not because of Monday, by the way, but because of uh, what happened on, on Tuesday, Wednesday, and I haven't done today's numbers, but kind of, kind of follow this, this logic on, um, on Monday, hang on, I just got to extend this um, to see it. Come on, load in. Okay, here we go. Okay, so on, on Monday, the average stock that was doing really well technically um, that was heavily shorted lost 2.16%, and the strongest stocks that had no one short lost 2.09. And then the heavily shorted stuff lost 3.30. So after Monday, you're a hedge fund. You're doing fine. You're making money because... Your shorts went down 3.30, which means you made 3.3%. Your longs went down 2.16, so you're up 1.14. Then what happened on Tuesday was the, 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 the things that have been heavily shorted, they went from a loss of 3.30 to a loss of 56 basis points. And then it got even worse Tuesday to Wednesday. It went from a loss of 56 basis points to up 6.41. So it means your average short is going against you 6.41. And on the long side, none of that stuff was working. So now you're down 7.7% for the week. And that, that happens. I told George this. Historically, I've tracked this since 2010. It happens roughly 21% of the time. And this is going to be the third week this year where it's happened. And it's, it's kind of interesting. It's, it's once a month. But that happens to you once a month. It's impossible to make back the numbers to be successful. So you, unless, if you're a hedge fund and you're not looking for the subtle changes where the long short tsunami comes about, and, and I'll tell you this, 90% of them don't, they're just, they're, they just get caught and then they freeze and then it's over like in a, in a very quick instant right. because of how computers are driven. Right. So, so, um, so, so Jeff, we just back to the point that, that, that's a great point. We got to have you do another room where you just you're talking. But I'm just particularly curious. And John was talking about the energy stocks, and you know, the institutions they haven't bought them, they don't want to buy them. They're they they like you. Going back to the observation you made a while back, how in the rally in the energy stocks, the only thing they were short they were shorting them. But yet now people are quick to to run back to run back to the beaten down tech stocks. It's like you know going back to a to, to an old girlfriend. It's not a good it's not a good idea. It's not going to end well. So, okay. so, 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 so could you could you speak to investor behavior, particularly with respect to the energy stocks from from the view through the lens of, of, of short interest? Yeah, well, let's 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 also talk about something else. This the, like Wall Street for how smart everyone is. No one has no one knows how to do math. That that's <laughs> the biggest freaking problem out there. So let's start with this idea. Like I, I heard someone say the other day, like, oh, everyone's caught in energy now. And, and I, I'm thinking to myself, like, what the fuck are you talking about? They're not caught. If you if you bought if you bought an energy stock at ten dollars and it goes to twenty dollars, how much did you make percentage wise? You made a hundred percent. Now, if you bought it at twenty dollars and it goes down to sixteen dollars, you just lost four dollars off of twenty, which is twenty percent. 
But if you were in at 10 and it went from 20 to 16, now your gain is 80%. So it's it's just it's just not the same comparison. People like are like, oh, everyone's caught now in this. And they and they say it on both sides of the equation. And it isn't true because you have to look at the entry point where people came into stuff. And and my big point right now is like, okay, yeah, the weakest stuff is bouncing. I don't think it's really bouncing because of, of short squeezes and stuff. Because look, anyone who has start who started shorting stuff like months ago is making a buttload of money. And they're and, and they don't have any pressure on them right now. It's only the guys who did it the most recently have that. And that's a, that's a small percentage of the overall number. Um, if you look at like how much the absolute number of shares short have risen in NASDAQ over like the last year, we're now up like 30%. And did every single one of those people just short in the last month? The answer is no. Don't so think I, so. Yeah. So, yeah. so I think a lot of people are getting it wrong. And what, what's amazing is one thing that we also look at is we quantify how short sellers do. And we're not even in a situation where the majority of the sectors are being driven by smart short sellers. We're still being driven by dumb short sellers. Yeah. They're just getting it right because the market's going down. You know, there's typically yep. three ways you make money as a short. You make money because the entire market goes down or the sector that you're shorting goes down or the individual stock goes down. And most people right now are making money just because the market's going down. Totally. So, All right. so I'd, I'd, love, I'd love for Michael to weigh in on that kind of thought process and how the game has changed from 2010, where we've been tracking this, to now. It's a great question. Michael? Yeah. Um, okay. So back then, I guess you have to put that in perspective of the first internet bubble, uh, you know, March 2000 peaks, huge bear market. They all go down. The crappy companies go bust. Bottoms in 2002. Um, NASDAQ down 80 something percent. Um, then then this internet 2.0 thing starts, you know, where the, the there's a whole nother cloud software thing and everything. And that becomes a, a meme, you know, that everybody jumps aboard. So I got the sensation that, and by looking at their portfolios, that these cloud software stocks was everyone's hedge funds consensus, biggest trade, everybody, they get on TV and talk about them disruptors, you know, and it's like, it overlaps with ARC and her idea, you know, um, but this was a, 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 probably one of the worst examples of groupthink I've ever seen in my life. Like everybody and his brother were, were, were long these stocks. And there's a whole, I mean, N N O W. I mean, there's like 60, 70 of these things. And they were all just like one big glop of, of speculation. And they're all trading. I mean, you go through and look at price. So the S&P price to sales ratio is three peaked at 3.6 a little while back. It's still high three something, which is like twice as high as normal. It's like normal price to sales is 1.5. These cloud software stocks were trading at 20 to 80 times revenues. And most of them had no earnings. Maybe some of them had a little bit of earnings. So they were in these highly speculative, extremely overvalued stocks, groupthink, and these weren't short. This wasn't their short. These were my shorts in the model last year starting kind of mid-year, late, you know, starting end of the summer. And they were working like a charm. But was anybody short these things? 
I didn't get that feeling. I was definitely quiet. I'm saying short Shopify and people are like giving me bad vibe. I, you know, I feel like people are sticking pins in my voodoo doll. My, my liver starts hurting um, because that's, these were their longs. So I think it's just another example of, of groupthink. And I don't really see, whereas, yeah, they're, they're down a lot and it's not early in the move down. I think they're still holding these things. So I think they're still vulnerable. So I think cloud software is the sort of, um, it's the most important thing of this cycle uh, in terms of over-owned long stocks and which have turned into great shorts. Right. That's great. Okay. Let's move on. Let's bring someone else in here, the conversation. Um, Steve, you have a question for Michael? Steve, you have a question for Michael? What's up? Yes. Yes, I do. Uh, thank you for letting me speak, Michael. I, so three days ago, Barclays and VXX, I noticed a headline and I said, you know what, I'm going to go long. So I buy a few calls. They were like 200 My strike price was $28, I believe. Was it closed around there that same day? Bought them at close. And it gapped up overnight, so I knew something was up because it's no longer coupled with the VIX. And they don't. there's no more issuance. So... The next day, if you were watching, it spot. It was a short squeeze. It looked like one, right? It didn't look like a normal volatility vehicle when the price was driven up to $41. But the VIX went with it. Now, they both gapped down at the exact same time. Remember when the S&P, if you were there, the S&P had bottomed for the day. It was a sharp bottom, too. And you would see the VIX fall apart. I think it was 10, 15 a.m., and VXX fell apart at the exact same moment. That was the third time they halted it. It fell apart. The market, you know, it rallied for the rest of the day. Now, VXX is not a volatility vehicle. Now, I mean, it is. Excuse me, Steve, 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 excuse me. Could you please, like, keep it tight? Is there a question for Michael? Yes. Could you please ask a question, please? is Is the potential for VXX greater now despite it being decoupled from the VIX, because now there's like a high, high short float. And you have the fear in the back of your head that if they let this thing go back to what it was before and no one covers their shorts, well, they may have to buy back at some higher price if the VIX is up. And I notice it continues to travel as a volatility vehicle, but it's more, the momentum is stronger and the premiums and the options are better. I don't know if it's correct, but it worked the first day. I did it. it uh, yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. The insane volatility it went from 25 to 40 something and then reversed and went all the way back down. Um, so I, I consider that it has to do with the Barclays uh, change of no share, no new share issuance. That's what triggered the thing. The other cross current that's affecting that this week, of course, is triple witching, which we haven't talked about. So the whole point of triple witching is for the dealers to to steal the premium from everyone who bought options. So basically, they have to delta hedge, which they're they're basically selling. They don't want volatility to go up in option volatility week, or the dealers get screwed. So that's what we're fighting. If you're long volatility VXX, uh, I will tell you what the model says: direction up, intensity strong, position mm, on the early side. So I I think 
Um, VIX itself will continue to go up. I think VXX will continue to go up and it has short squeeze potential. The only one thing that scares me is that they could delist this thing because um, because it's, you can't short it anymore, so it's disconnected. So they've got to have, Barclays has got to have somebody delta hedging this thing. So they're doing something with the futures. The, you know, this is um, the two, the tail. The question is, which tail is wagging the dog? Is it the futures or this ETF? And um, so uh, I, I still like VXX as a long, with the caveat that um, they may do something strange like just retire this thing like they did with the other volatility ETF long ago, uh, a few years back. Um, I don't think it, that's imminent, but that's that's a worry in the back of my mind when I recommend this as a long. But I still like it as a long. I think volatility is going up. And um, vol the sign of volatility in the market is these big swings, big percentage swings. NASDAQ up 4% yesterday. And how much again? Not so much today. Um, up. Uh, hardly one, but the, ha, three days up. Day, big daily percentage swings are the si hallmark of a bear market. Volatility rises in a bear market, and you get some of the biggest uh, daily percentage changes of all time. Of course, we're in the 29 to 32, 1929 to 1932 bear market. So you can go down, 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 you know, seven days in a row. Then you get up 20% day or something, you know, and you think every, so um, volatility. I think we're headed into a period of higher volatility, which is some short-term traders can catch, but it's definitely it's very hard. It makes it very difficult to hold positions. Um, you know, you just you get challenged. I mean, I look at this as trench warfare. This is like World War One. You go out there every morning, and you're in the trenches. The other guys are shooting at you. You know, you're in this. You try to stick your head up and. <laughs> You know, it's like, you know, Ukraine or something. So the market is really a battlefield and um, they're, they're not trying to make it easy on you. But I think volatility will continue to rise. We'll get these big daily percentage swings. But don't be fooled by the big up days because the big up days are generally followed by bigger down days. And that's when the VXX will like score again. So I don't know where this thing could go, but it could like, I, I think it could double or something or more than double VXX somewhere down the line. Thank you, Michael. All right, so just one second here before we move on. I hey, bring, hey, I hey George, real quickly. This is Jeff yeah. Garbass. Yeah. I, I got to ask about this on, on the Fred call this morning. And to me, this became very obvious that the last thing you should be trading is, is VXX. Because what happened on Tuesday was it went all the way up to 40-something at a time when the VIX was falling. So it, it was not doing what it should be doing and what the purpose of it was created for. And it, it has to do, Michael's correct. It has to do with um, Delta hedging and the number of puts. See, the big problem with this expiration is that there's an enormous number of puts that are going to expire on Friday and people have all made money in those. And as the market starts to come back, as Michael was saying correctly, then, then the dealers have to kind of bring that money into them. But, I think anyone who trades it, sorry about the person who was talking to you, but, but you're an idiot because yeah. if, if, if you understand, <laughs> like the product doesn't work the way it's supposed to. Yeah, right, Jeff, 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 Jeff we, we, I get total agreement. Great point. I would like you and Michael to talk about something, else, which and by the way, let me just reset the room here for a second. Um, we got a lot of really smart people up here. Um, this is murderers row. There's never, I think, been a Twitter space 
with as many powerful investment professionals as this one. If you're waiting, if you requested to speak and I haven't recognized you, I've sent you a DM and you must respond to it. What your question is going to be, because I'm not going to let people up here. You know, it's like you're watching Jim Cramer, you know, like Michael. You know, hi, hi, Michael. I'm a first time caller. This is George from New York. I own Apple, AMD, and NVIDIA. Am I diversified? Okay. We're not having any of that. Now I'm going to do my, 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 my Jerry Springer fucking rant. We're not allowing fucking moronic questions like that in this room. Michael Belkin's time is too valuable, as is Tom Thornton's, as is Jeff Garbaz, as is the chart life, right? No fucking stupid questions. So if you, if I don't know you, you've asked to speak, I've sent you a direct message. If you don't answer the ask, answer what the, tell me what the question is going to be, I'm not letting you on stage. I'm not allowing you to waste. There's 900 people in this fucking room. I'm not allowing you to waste their time. If you're not going to take the time to tell me what the fucking question is, you're not going to be allowed up on stage. I'm done with my speech. Okay. Hey, so, now, so George, George, my point was more of this. If you want to no, trade, no, Jeff, no, yep, Jeff, the, no, Jeff. But my point wasn't directed at you. You're too good a friend for that. I'm talking about the people who are standing in line waiting to ask questions. Oh no, 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 no! But no, let, no, me no, just, so Jeff, let me just Jeff, say Jeff, this, Jeff, I, Jeff, Jeff, stop! Let, let's fucking stop. We, we, you know, this is the problem with stupid fucking questions. Now I'm gonna go on a fucking rant, right? Some jackass comes in here. He's probably a nice guy, but because he didn't ask the question, answer question of what are we talking about, right? He asked like a retail one-on-one question, which doesn't belong in this fucking room, and it ruins the it ruins the the the, the momentum in this room. It wastes too many people's fucking time. All right, I'm not gonna have that. And now you're taking the fucking bait, Jeff, because because you're answering that question. Let's fucking forget about that guy. The more important question, which you and Michael start to get to about volatility and options, is what is you know what is the role of the expiration later this week having on the market. And what are we like? And, and more importantly, forget about what's happened the last few days. What is that likely to mean, or what might it mean for what the market might do next week once we're done with the expiration? Jeff, you first. Michael, you second. Okay, awesome, awesome question. Um, so we got we got today to forty four hundred, and we we basically stopped on a dime. Guess why? Because there's a lot of options activity coming in tomorrow's expiration, and once we're done with that, we're either going to get through it, and it's gonna it's gonna Force more people to have to sell puts, and we're going to go up to like 440, 445 on SPY or 450 or 4,500. But then when we get to next week, as Warren Buffett would say, everyone's naked again, and people got to decide how they're going to rehedge themselves. And, and so that, that's my answer to that. But George, let me, let me just say one quick thing. Better than trading VXX, the way to do it is to trade VIX calls or VIX puts. That is a much cleaner way, and you'll catch the direction correctly the way you believe it's going to go. That's all I wanted to say. Michael, do you, Michael, do you have any thought? I mean, I thought you put it so well when you said the brokers want to steal the money from the guys who own the options or the money. So what does it yeah. mean you think all things being equal? Do you think that's kind of what's given the part of one of the reasons that it's giving a bit of the market? And then what does that lead you to think might happen once the expiration comes and goes? Yeah, um, I absolutely. I, I totally agree with what Jeff said. Um, that this um, kind of invisible hand of of you know jacking prices up for no good reason 
you know, no news stories, nothing. All of a sudden, it just starts going up relentlessly. It's that's delta hedging, you know. And there's other people that know a lot more about this than me. But although, actually, it's back in the Solomon days, I used to price some of these over-the-counter options. You know, I I, meant, I, I was kind of the expert in volatility back then. Um, but I I think I suspect very strongly that once these puts expire tomorrow, like uh, like Jeff said no more protection and um there's no more squeeze potential so basically this is just a squeeze to steal the premium of options and steal protection and then people are going to be left naked as jeff said next week so they will begin if they're bearish the market starts going down they're going to be buying puts starting the process all over again from close to zero right i mean not you know anything that was you know there's People have positions out in diff distant months, June, September and stuff. But I think this is a, a very bearish setup where you get a, a sharp rally up in a downtrend where the reason for the rally disappears and then you start heading down again. By the way, European markets are even worse. Like I have the biggest short-term reversal. I, I looked at it right before we started this. Um, you've had this huge move. Like they went down 12% on average DAX, CAC, things like that. Um, we had this huge bounce the last few days, I think there must be some option thing happening over there too. And I have a mega, mega short-term reversal signal on European markets. Um, same thing like we've seen oil sold off sharply and then it was up 10% today, right? Crude oil. So there's the potential for a major reversal down in stocks, up in energy, down in European stocks, um, starting sometime after tomorrow, maybe tomorrow. We'll see. All right. That's great. Um, okay, so we're gonna put an order in here. Um, we've got Porter. We do Porter first, and then Trent Wizzo, and then Tommy Thornton. Porter, what's up? How you doing, George? Appreciate the uh, the time here. And uh, Michael's is a fantastic uh, spaces. I, we basically have the same portfolio. And my question is that you know the Fed is once again blown one of the greatest bubbles in, in human history, right? And you know buying 120 billion a month is just absurd. And so how does the Fed play into your thinking here? Because, you know, the, the risk is, is that most of us aren't bearish enough and the Fed reverses course pretty quickly. Yeah, yeah. Porter, Porter, and... Porter, 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 I'm going to interrupt you, okay? If, if I do not, one of the things we're not going to do, we're not going to, we're not, you know, we're not going to do, what do you think they're going to do? No. If you have a question about what the Fed's role is, but what I don't want to do is waste time well, None of us know it, go, it goes to liquidity, though, George. It goes to no, liquidity. No, I, I know, right? I know, I know. But I just serving a warning. If it goes to liquidity, it's fine. But I don't want to get into the discussion of everyone's opinion about what they think the Fed's going to do. So go ahead. Well, so, 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 so the question is, how do you think about now that the, the, the biggest buyer known to mankind, you know, uh, a tiger a month, a billion, a uh, hundred billion dollars buying every day, every month. Now that that's gone, how, how do you, how does that play into your thesis? Good question. So, um, oddly enough, I'm looking for a bounce in bonds. Kind of, it's not a strong signal, but uh, just a long end, basically. You know, thirty year. Um, did you watch uh, his press conference, Powell's press press conference yesterday? Did you sure. see him? Yep. He looked like a cornered rat to me. Like I saw, like people, like you don't get to be a journalist and ask him questions unless you're part of the team, right? You're not supposed to shake the boat. But somebody asked him, you know, they said, didn't you say to the Wall Street Journal that you should have moved earlier? And his face like screwed up. It's like, so yeah, obviously, I mean, forget about what the Fed's gonna do next. 
they're so far behind the curve. It's ridiculous. You know, 7% CPI, they raise the rate 0.25%. Hello. I mean, they are so, you know, so the whole time they, they should have been tightening was the time they were, like you said, adding $120 billion a month. Now they're just beginning to move in baby steps. So here's what I think. Um, I think the economy, so my, I didn't really get into this, but I think the economy is headed for a cliff. So if you look at consumer sentiment, University of Michigan consumer sentiment, direction down, intensity strong, position semi-early. Uh, it's below the lows of March 2020. It's below the coronavirus lows. Gas price, 450 you know, a gallon. Um, so I think the Fed, it, it, you know, people are talking about this. This is not a, you know, a unique provision for me to say, but um, they're just like been on the wrong side of everything. When they should have been tightening, they were easing. Now that it's too late, <laughs> they're running to catch up with the bus, but the economy is going to turn down the tubes. So, um, so we have this high inflation rate that's not going to go away anytime soon. But the economy, I think, you know, we're going to start seeing it in retail sales, uh, my forecast for PMIs, you know, purchasing managers indexes, those are all down. So we're going to see, like they're still talking, you know, if you saw him yesterday, Powell was saying, but the manufacturing is so strong and the demand for labor is so strong, that ain't going to last. So we're going to hit the road. Economy's going to hit a brick wall pretty soon. Fed's going to be tightening into an economic contraction. I think they're going to get cold feet. And um, that's very bullish for gold okay so if they like the seven rate hikes that are factored into the euro dollars um and the, the fed funds you know everybody's talking about i don't think it's going to happen i think they're they're just too much of a coward that's great that's great porter fantastic question and porter if you don't mind Thank you, put, no, no great question i'm going to put you in the audience porter just because we've got a long line of people who want up here all, all right that's good that's good all right by the way uh if you're waiting to speak or if you're requested to speak and, and, uh, and you, you, you need to send me, a, and I don't know you, you need to send me a direct message to what the question is because there's just too many people who want to ask questions and we don't, we're not going to be here all night. So, okay, so we're going to do Trent Wizzo and then Tommy Thornton and then my good friend Guy Serendulo. So, Trent Wizzo, good to see you. What's up, Trent Wizzo? George, thank you for hosting this. Uh, as always, a pleasure, and uh, it's great to learn from uh, uh, yourself as well as from all the guests. Uh, I have a question for uh, for the guests, Jeff Belkin, uh, and then uh, Tommy. Um, so, uh, last time, uh, I think this was about a month ago, when uh, Jeff mentioned about Wix term structure having a ton of information in it. So I went back, found a bunch of papers, both academic and from the banks, and also spoke to several volatility traders. And uh, what emerged to me this week was that when we went from Friday to Monday, uh, the term structure started giving signals that, hey, Monik, if if you have uh, any shorts, then get out of it at the moment because the term structure is changing uh, from backwardation potentially towards, you know, either flattening out or contango. Uh, and we saw somewhat of that structure happening. So my question to the guests, all three guests, is uh, that do you see the term structure going back in backwardation for Vix and uh, um, thank you much, George, for hosting this uh, and helping us with the guidance. Yeah, so so I I, I really want yeah, Michael to question about the term structure on the Vix. Any thoughts on that, Michael? Not really. It's not. A, uh, I I think there'll still be demand for the front month. I, the front month expires. Um, 
if the if the volatility goes through the ceiling like I'm expecting, where we get you know we get daily percentage moves, big. So basically, if you picture, uh, if you just chart daily percentage moves um, in the market, usually it stays in this horizontal range. And in a bear market, that starts expanding like crazy. So it looks like a megaphone increase where the band on the top goes up, the band on the bottom goes down, and you start getting three, four, five percent moves up and down all the time. That's what I think we're on the brink of. And I think that will make the front month, I think there will be more demand for hedging in the front. So I, I, not, I don't necessarily agree with um, the idea that it will go into contango or, or backward, or, you know. All right, so you know, let, let, let's get off the, the, the volatility question. That, that's a great answer. Let's move on to the next thing. Uh, we've got Tommy Thornton and then my good friend, Guy Cerno. Thomas, first off, I'm not, if you want to take a victory lap, it's got to be a really short one because I'm going to call you out. And, 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 and so, boys and girls, we were in the room. We had a room together. No, Tommy, let me, let me do it because I, I, I don't – I really want this room to be that Michael. Okay, so we, it's fantastic we have him here. So for those of you in the room the other day, Tommy Thornton pissed me off, pissed everybody off. He made a bullish call. He was right um, against everybody else. So, you know, let's, let's, he deserve, deserves a big shout out. And again, um, you know, fantastic product as hedge fund telemetry if anybody's interested. So, Tommy, just I, 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 if you want to sense quickly on your market outlook, that's fine. But I really don't want to go there. I really want to, if you have a question for Michael, I'd rather we, because we, we, it's, it's really special we have him here, so I really would just want to confine yourself to questions from Michael. I'd appreciate that. Hey, George, uh, and everyone. Uh, hey, Michael, uh, I used to read your stuff when I worked uh, for uh, the hedge fund I worked for way back when, and I found it fascinating, and I always found little elements, and I think that's the thing um, that you can integrate into your own process. and everyone in here is going to integrate a little bit of things that are spoken about and things that you do and the experience. So I am really like excited to that. Well, I'm excited that you're on Twitter. I just uh, followed you and, uh, and I'm, I'm really excited to see some of the stuff that you might put out on Twitter. I know that it's, you stick to your knitting and your clients. And so it's, it's, it's great. Um, so the, the one question I have is that, and, and, and actually I can, I can relate when you were short uh, the Nikkei, uh, we were short pretty heavily uh, financials in the U.S. markets in 2008. And it was just, I have talked about it in here. It was incredibly stressful because you kept thinking every single bounce was going to be the bounce that you get caught in and give back your gains. So it's incredibly stressful, so I can relate on that. But the the, the big question I have, and, I, and I'm I'm generally a bear. Um, I'm masquerading right now as a bull. Uh, <laughs> but <laughs> who knew? My wife doesn't even she doesn't recognize me either. Um, <laughs> uh, but like, where would you say you would be wrong on your? I mean, where does your model go wrong? Like I, 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 I've followed it and you, you can, you can make a longer term projection on the S and P or other markets. Tell me where it goes wrong and how you find that to go, go wrong. Because that's something that I try very, very hard with my own work to find out 
and understand where things go wrong? Yeah, great question. So um, if I look back over the years, it, 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 there, it would be a, a question of flows, where flows overwhelm, where I was looking for a turning point in something, the top or the bottom in something, and the flows either kept selling at the lows at the bottom or kept buying and it drove it up further. So I had a few incidences of that certainly over the years. Um, but uh, I think um, where it works best is where both the long-term, that's remember the monthly data, 12 months, and the intermediate term, that's weekly data, three months, when they're saying the same thing. So right now they're saying the same thing down for the stock market. And um, when there's a conflict between those, so if I'm, if I'm right about this scenario, in the weekly forecast, it looks like we go down until May. So point A was November, shorting the NASDAQ. The bottom right now is projected to be ballpark sometime in May. Uh, no precise number. Um, but at that point, the long term will still be down, but the intermediate term could be up. So that, that would be the only kind of intermediate term bounce I would, um, you know, I would uh, recommend trading for something that's more than a couple days, not a three-day move, but something that could last a few months and be kind of more something you couldn't stay short through. So um, I guess that's the answer when, when the when the when the different time forecasts disagree. Experiences with those in the past where I would go with the intermediate term, not the long term. So, so when the long term signal. It, it isn't always there, but it's sure there now. So when, but um, so you can't ignore, you know, in my experience with this model, you can't ignore the long-term signals. Um, you know, the intensity yeah, when something I, is strong. I guess, I guess. I guess Michael, trying to be Switzerland in this debate. Yeah. You, you have the right. So hold on, hold on, Tommy, just hold on. I'm trying to be Switzerland. Don't yell at me, George. I'm trying to. I'm trying to be a broker, <laughs> broker settlement here. So Michael's had the right long-term call. You've had the right long-term call, Tommy. And maybe it's a question of multiple time frames because you nailed this turn. Like, I, I, I get stuff from both you guys, okay? So, Michael was bearish, is bearish. I suspect, based on what you just said, he's going to be bearish until May. You, though, wanted to zero in on a shorter time frame and made, made a great call. So, kudos to you. So, the question, Michael, is, you know, if you were to try to, I don't know, change the frequency of the periodicity of your calls, Tommy made a brilliant call catching the oversold bounce. Some of us who weren't, who didn't go along with him for the ride are like, oh, he's trying to catch a falling knife. Good. He caught one. He didn't cut his hand. But like, if, if, if you could imagine Michael changing, shortening up the frequency of some of your work, like, if, you, if someone, because I'm of the view that, that you know, it's, it's always a bad idea to trade counter trend. It just generally doesn't work. Sometimes you get it right, but most of the time you're going to get it wrong. And as, as Dennis Gartman always says, you know, in a bull market, you only can be long or flat, long or flat. In a bear market, short or flat, short or flat. Tommy got a great call here right now. And so, and, and Tommy's done this, to, it annoys the shit out of me because he comes up with these buy calls when the sky's falling. This isn't the first time he's pulled this stunt on me, okay? He's usually, he's been right. And so, like, if, if I forced you, Michael, to say, okay, you, you, you have to, like, we want we want you to tighten up the time frames. Like, is there anything in your work that could have that you could imagine might have got you to, if you shortened up the periodicity might have got you to 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 to, to call to go on bullish as Tommy a few days ago, or it's just not the way you roll, Michael. You just f f focus on the long term.
Michael, can you did you hear the question, Michael? Hold on, he got pushed back into. Uh, I don't know what happened to him, Michael? You, you got, I'm asking you. Oh God, what's going on here? Tommy, can you hear me? Tommy Thornton. Yeah, I can. I can. Yeah. Um, yeah so, so Tommy, maybe speak to. We're waiting for Michael to come back up. Maybe speak to the multiple time frames. Like, how do you balance? Like, if you made you got this call right, kudos to you. But then, as you are a closet bear, actually, you're not in the closet. You've come out of the closet. Like, how do you sleep at night knowing that half your brain in the short term is bullish and then longer term you're bearish? Like, how do you resolve that contradiction in your head? I actually sleep pretty well. Um, either being, you know, mega long or mega short. I, I That's not a, a big issue. I, I, I feel that I sleep wrong when or bad when I'm mega wrong. And I have to, you know, uh, reverse, um, try to keep that, you know, on the right side of the, the trade as much as I can. I mean, look, I, I'm a trader. I work for a very demanding hedge fund that I was in, in the foxhole shooting the guns at, at things while the generals were, you know, in the background. Uh, so, yeah, I need to know where the bodies are buried and where everything is um, explosive out there and know that. If market sentiment gets overdone, which it did, uh, if every single internal uh, gets overdone, yep. And if I start to see DeMarc signals pile up and they didn't give me every single thing that I wanted. And I think Tom DeMarc was kind of out there yesterday talking about, but it gave me enough. And I'm sort of the, if I can get 75% of the indicators going in the direction that I want, I'll take the trade. I just I can't wait for everything to line up and I'll go counter to a lot of different things. And I try to stay fluid in that regard. I mean, I came on and I told everyone I was, you know, I sold my gold. I sold energy short and they just, you know, I swear to God, it was just I got some DMs that were pretty good. Yeah. Um, Framers. Let's put it the other way. Okay, so you got this bounce right. You asked Michael the right question about, you know, when, when, when he, you know, he's, he answered the question about how would he think about when he's wrong. So let me put the question to you. Let's turn it the other way. Let's put the mirror back on you. So you made, you made a short-term call. Kudos to you. It's mm-hmm. working. In the back of your mind, you're still bearish. What's it going to take for you to take the flag down on your bullish call? So I look at a, a bunch of different time frames, but I found – in corrective type markets, uh, I, I like to look at a 60 minute time frame and that helps me and gives me some sort of perspective because I also use um, wave analysis on that as well. And everyone, you know, here's Elliott Wave and they're like, oh, we're out of here. And they're clicking off of George's uh, spaces. But I think the most important thing is thinking about the personality of what each wave represents and what's happening within each wave. And honestly, it's the most simple thing. And if you go to Wikipedia and you type in Elliott wave, they have the, the personalities of the wave and you kind of understand of what's, what's happening. So let's just roll back. And I, I look at waves on a longer term time frame as well, but the first move up, nobody believed it this right off the lows. And that's, that's typical. Nobody believes the first wave. It pulled back, and, and the pullback was right after the Fed uh, came out and raised rates 25 basis points. 
and then it started moving higher and it was a shallower uh, corrective wave wave two low and then we made a new high above uh, the previous high and now we're in wave three so i think right now we have five waves up in a short-term pattern and as much as may, some people may think oh well that really doesn't matter uh, I think people are going to get on board on the long side. Maybe they started to today. And then there's going to be a corrective pullback probably tomorrow with options expiring early in the morning. And then perhaps another high. And that's it. It's it, We're not going to new highs. But after that, then it's going to get a little bit more tricky because everyone that missed the move up is going to get long and get caught out. And that's my plan where I want to sell into Thanks so yeah, yeah i bought i bought a lot of garbage and i have a lot of internals that are really overdone i mean i i bought things almost laughing with a couple of my clients i, I bought we work i bought doordash and i i was short doordash all right, at 240. All right, all right, all right. Put garbage we got you. we're dumpster diving we're dumpster diving okay okay no, 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 no. Come on, no, no. No, but I, no, no, the, no, no, the no, point no, no, is. No, 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 no. Tommy, your friend, I gave you the kudos. You know, you can take one lap around no, the track, I, but we ain't letting you run the mile with multiple multiple laps. Okay. No. I, 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 I chalk it up to luck. Okay. I'm going to no, get. No, no, I asked you a serious question. <laughs> we'll, we'll see how this rolls. We get we get through Oscar expiration. We'll check back on Monday. We'll see what happens. I don't know. I Every day is a new day. So I anyway. deleted my Twitter account. Okay. Hey, everyone. <laughs> Have a good night. I love you, man. I love you. All right. Love you, too. All right. And, uh, guy, and Michael, up, awesome. And I see some really great people. I, I see John Roke in there, who I yep. think is just awesome. I've learned so much from him. And uh, there's Chris Verone, who is yeah, we, Maybe we should get if, – if Chris would come up and talk. He never talks. But anyway. Come um, on, Chris. Right, so step up. I invited Chris up to talk. But anyway. Let, 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 let's let's do guy and um and by the way i see a few people here have requested to speak i've not recognized you you need to tell me what the question is or i will not bring you up on stage guy my friend what's up hey george how are you um actually great space and i'm glad you had michael on it's like getting a hermit out of a hole but that's phenomenal um but i was gonna ask him a question now i don't think he's on there but it's similar to what i think Tommy said yeah, about. I, I, uh, I don't. I, I don't know if guy ran out of time or. Sorry, guy. I don't know if, if Belkin ran out of time or his phone blew up or what's going on. But he disappeared. But go, go ahead, guy. Guy. Yeah. If, if, if your question is that was from Belkin, Mike is not here. You just want to talk about something else, your market view or anything. Have at because yeah. because well, Michael's I, not I, here. Yeah, I was going to ask a question, but also I was going to reiterate in, in agreement with what he said. I mean, in the in some of these alpha capture portfolios. Um, you saw my notes because I share my stuff with you, but uh, you know, got long some of the, well, energy complex, most of it, crude, Arbob, heating oil, and also gold and silver last night. And, and the reason why I say that, there's just some really important inflection points that were materializing, and thus far they're, they're working. But I think he's spot on with your European markets. Um, and again, I, I, I have some shorts on there for this book that I run, but it's Amsterdam, Dax, CAC, and I put the FTSE MIB on uh, today. So he's spot on with his thoughts on European banks, SOCGEN, UniCredit, and a bunch of other things. So, um, you know, just look at some of these charts of the CAC or DAX where they've rallied up into the, you know, big top patterns of where the distribution tops are taking place. So, you know, it, 
to be honest, it's uh, like you would say, George, when you know you and I worked together years back, as people, so people should know, it's a shit show. It it it's a beer market rally. It's a trap. Uh, if you go back to how you know markets declined after the twenty nine peak into the thirty two lows, you had you know vicious bear market rallies. Um, you know, you know, weeks in duration or days in duration where there were big, big moves up and people just got suckered in. So um, anyway, I'm on Michael's page. I think, um, you know, it's a rally to sell into at some point. But, you know, I'm all over the energy and, and, and the gold stuff. I think that looks really sustainable. And I do agree with what uh, Jeff was saying. Because I, I do look at, I, I worked with Phil Erlanger years back at Fidelity. And I still get the work and look at it. I think it's phenomenal. Uh, Jeff does some great, great work. But I was just shocked with the expansion of how many stocks were in the energy uh, sector that were shorted in the last couple of weeks. So people are just adding on there. And I think it's just more fuel for the fire. I mean, I think the, pull the pullbacks, and I got to go in a couple of minutes because I'm in Essex, Massachusetts, great seafood, if anybody's around the area. But if you look at the pullbacks and things like Oxy, uh, Apache and a, a number of other energy names. They, to me, that's yeah, short-term uh, profit-taking, but it's pretty orderly. They're not collapses that are breaking patterns. And if you look at things like Agnico, you know, pull back to the top of the base. How the heck, you know, a one-eye technician with a crooked ruler would be foolish not to buy some of these things. So anyway, I'll leave it at that. And uh, George, we'll talk later. Appreciate that, Kat. Hey, um, yep. uh, Michael Belkin, um, I don't know how you fell out of the room. We didn't throw you out. The Twitter must have gotten jiggy, but um, I've, I've sent you a request to, if you're listening, I've sent you a uh, request to uh, speak. If you raise your hand, we'll get you back up here. Um, we're going to close this room in about 15 minutes. So, Michael, if you can come back up, that'd be great. In the meantime, we're just looking at who's up on stage. It's just freaking unbelievable. Between uh, Jeff Garbaz, uh, John Roke, um, and, and so many good people up here. And Tony Greer, you're in the room. Uh, if you have a comment, I don't know if you're listening, you want to weigh in, that's great. Um, so, yeah, no, this is wonderful. So, 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 John, John Rook or, or Jeff Garbaz, um, you're up on stage. You have any, uh, any, any you would like to contribute anything, any, any thoughts on, uh, you know, anything that's been said here or, or market observations? Well, hold on, hold on. We got, we got Mr. Greer in the house. Tony, my friend, good to see you. This has just been the most unbelievable accumulation of, uh, of, 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 this is better than any CMT program. I'm sorry. And maybe it's because the street doesn't, you know, so many charts have been fired. I don't know, but I've never seen so many smart technicians, the ones I respect in one place at one time. I'm really glad you're here, Tony. Um, what's on your mind? You know, I know you've been listening. Any thoughts on what's been said here or any thoughts on the market you want to share with us? Well, I think, first of all, thanks again, man. I don't want to waste everyone's time. You do a great job at this. But, you know, to hear all the different viewpoints and like you pointed out, George, from running this call, that hearing different people arrive at things from different angles is the most valuable thing to me. Um, you know, when the synapses start firing and somebody says it gives a different explanation to something you think, that's when you know, the value gets created. And, um, you know, I'd imagine Tommy had a runoff because his P&L probably set his computer on fire or something like that. But, you know, I think that, you know, Tom is, I, I love the way that he fits into this conversation because it, it just, you know, it just reminds you that you are in for the same game that you were in for if you traded through the dot-com, you know, bubble. 
and it's going to be where, you know, the Fed, you know, sets a little fire onto the market. It gets things going. And then, you know, the bears have to decide, OK, when is it time to attack? And I feel like that's very much the mode that we're in. Um, I'm really encouraged if I were to make one observation about the commodity markets. Um, I'm really encouraged by the fact that this dip coincided with, you know, the Icarus Prince came right before the Fed. Commodities settled into a range for a couple of days. The Fed threw this little speed bump, you know, the size of a cigarette butt out in front of them. And everything got back in motion today with, you know, serious moves across the commodity complex kind of confirms what you think should be happening. You know, so you've got to adjust accordingly to that. And that's all I wanted to say. This is a great call. It was a great confidence builder for the things that I'm trading. So I appreciate it. And that's all I have to say. And and Tony, thank you for great. Even though it's brief, thank you for not uh, at all, man, coming up here. It's just I mean. The, the crowd loved I know you were in here a few weeks ago. Everyone loved it. We'll have you in here as a feature speaker again. But it's just great to drop by and, and drop some truth in here. Um, so, so thank you for that. And, Michael, I'm glad you're back. We, Michael Belkin, we didn't throw you out. You disappeared. So I don't know if you went to the witness protection program <laughs> or your phone blew up or whatever. But I'm glad you're back here. So, 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 Michael, I mean, I don't know what part. I don't know if you heard the last few minutes if it, if, if it prompted any thoughts in your head. But um, anything you want to say, Michael? Otherwise, we'll just go on to another question. Yeah, a couple – Couple final thoughts. Uh, sorry, I've dropped out. I, I'm all new to this phone stuff. <laughs> um, I, I'm a computer ace, but you know, I got a Linux VMware system. Um, two things we didn't talk about: China. Okay, China has just collapsed absolutely. Uh, in the and you know, it bounced. We've been down super sharply. Uh, but so China has a bear market rally. The Chinese authorities come out and say. Oh, it's okay. We're going to support the market. Everybody feels goes and rushes, and it goes up by ten or fifteen percent. Okay, my model forecast for China remains down. So FXI is a short. We're getting a bear market rally, kind of like the Nikkei. I don't think this is the bottom in the Chinese market, and that has major implications for all these hedge funds that hold Baba and all these kind of stocks, and for the other global markets. Um, on the other side, there's one thing positive I'd like to say solar. So of all, remember I had direction position intensity. So I've been short solar stocks for a long time. That signal ran off about three, four weeks ago. And solar is turning into an outperform prospect. And I know these are a lot of garbage companies, but um, uh, the potential, I think, um, what you know, putting a narrative on what the model is saying is uh, perhaps solar stocks could get dragged up with energy. So they get tacked on to the end and all these governments are throwing money at solar, ESG and everything. And these, these things got knocked down tremendously. They went down 70% or something, a lot of them. So that's one on the positive side, maybe solar turns into an outperformed candidate. On the negative side, China, whoa, it's not the bottom. It's going to get worse. And that's really negative for the global, um, global stock markets. Thank you for that, Michael. That's even though Michael, it just feels so dirty. Like, would you admit to owning solar stocks to a client? I mean, like, seriously, Michael. Well, I guess it's like, um, <laughs> no. I, so, same thing as uh, Jeff, you know, I guess. Um, uh, so, I, I, I got to go with the model. I got to be impartial. You know, that's, you got to look at risk and impartially like if something the model says something is turning i got to go with it simple as that so and you know things get sold out they they get bottomed you know these things 
We're shorted. I know I have some hedge fund short clients that all they do is short. I know I told them to short these things, you know, a year ago, and uh, they went down enormously. So I just think it could be a potential turning point. Solar might not make sense, might might feel dirty if you want to buy first solar or something. It doesn't seem like <laughs> it's not the most intuitive thing in the middle of a bear market. But I think they could outperform based on the bat. I think they could just piggyback on energy, basically. Still there? Ah. Yeah, hold on a second. My video, my audio thing just screwed up. Hold on. Hey, George, it's uh, Jeff. Yeah, hey, Jeff, on first, what's up, Jeff? Yep. On, uh, on, on first solar, I got, I got to just make a quick comment. I, I have a screen I run every day. It's, it's called Bottom Fishers. And the idea, Michael, Michael will love this. It, the, the goal of it is to look at stuff that's below its kind of monthly moving averages, much longer term, but it's getting back into its weekly moving averages. And the name that popped up on that screen today was First Solar. So it's really interesting that that Oh, no. Up. Oh, no. As a long. As a long. <laughs> I shit you not. It's my favorite stock of the day. Oh, George. God. George, oh, God. I've, been saying that I've been saying to buy Sun Power for a month now. All right. Three aces. No, let's not. I don't want that rabbit hole. I'm not going to. But I have to ask you one question. It actually brings, brings props to question. So, Michael. Mike, this okay. is only for Michael. This is only for Michael. Michael, um, we normally have a prohibition that we do not discuss crypto. We do not discuss Bitcoin and crypto, okay? Because it goes into a shit show. Number go up. You know, it's a story of value. It's this, it's that, whatever. But from a purely bottom-up chart basis, no opinion about it. It's going to zero. None of that. But what is the chart? How does the chart speak to you? The chart of Bitcoin and crypto. How, what is that? What is that? What is, how's the chart talking to you, Michael? Okay, um, it's a week short for me now. I've been shorted for a while, and it's worked. Um, it's with some huge volatility. Uh, I don't think the decline is over, but I'm losing conviction. So something's got to happen pretty soon in the next few weeks, or my short position will kind of, it won't go positive, but it will just go, I don't know. You know, remember, it's either up, down, or neutral. And neutral can be a good thing to know because it might just be whipsaws, you know? So I, that's all I know. I, I don't really have a firm conviction on Bitcoin. It's a week short hold at the moment, very late. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm getting punchy. I think I'll drink some wine. Sorry about that, Michael. I, I don't know if that came through well enough. <laughs> Hey, hey George, can I can yeah, I ask Jeff, Mike? What's up? Yeah, what's can up? I ask Mike, Michael a quick question on on, uh, sure. on it? Uh, hey, hey, Michael. One thing that's kind of interesting that I found is that there is a relationship that exists between Bitcoin and gold, and I'm curious if in any of your work you you found that as well. Um, hang on, let me just run that. Uh, can you hear me? Okay, here we go. Yep. yep. Bitcoin. Bitcoin. And I, use, I, use GLD, I use GLD as my, um, that's what I do the comparison on. Okay. Bitcoin to gold. Same thing. Spin down. It's running out. The, the downward signal. So it's going neutral from being a short relative to gold. Yep, on the weekly yep, yep, so next, yep. next three months. So I just, I, I've had it as a short. It looks 
like something that's a very stale short to me. It could go either way. So at the, a point like this, end, remember, position, the end, big things can happen at the end or the thing can reverse at the end. So the uncertainty level goes up and I don't, I don't like uncertainty. So I basically, I'll probably go flat Bitcoin. It might turn into an outperformer, um, in a, not yet, but maybe out a few weeks. So, so uh, I, I agree with exactly what you said. But I, I have a follow-on. It's kind of related to it, but not. Um, so if you're looking at that relationship daily, you get a different viewpoint than if you do weekly. And one of the biggest problems with looking at, I don't, I don't care what the data is, when, you, when your periodicity is a, a daily versus weekly, you're just, you're just bound to have whipsaws. And, and so I'm curious how you, how you deal with that whole issue quantitatively. Um, good question. So that was the really the original development of this model was to um, reduce whipsaws. So false signals. So remember, I back tested everything until I was blue in the face. And a lot of things had like, so by the way, my thing is based on mathematics behind time series analysis and Fourier analysis. Okay, that's what I studied in this Berkeley statistics department. I, uh, I bashed my head against the screen, learning these crazy mathematics behind the stuff. And um, then I managed to apply it. But um, so the model smooths some of this. It's not perfect. You know, I wouldn't try to land the space shuttle or something with it. And it's not 99.999%. But um, that's what the exponential function in this model does. It, it smooths out some of the wrong signals and some of the thing, some of the whipsaws where there's nothing worse than saying, making a big commitment to something and saying, oh, it's going, it's going up, it's going up. It's a major turning point. And then boom, like next week, say, oh, sorry, um, didn't work out. So I, I really, uh, that happens, you know, that definitely happens sometimes. But um, most of the time, this model is pretty good at, at kind of getting out of the way. The only difference is um, it can be gradual changes at turning points or abrupt. And sometimes the abrupt signals uh, kind of, they freak people out. So all of a sudden I'm short bonds and then boom, I go from short to long bonds in a second. And it's kind of like what you, what you were saying about what, you know, when you go from bearish to bullish. Um, so, uh, anyways, that's why I say, uh, the model minimizes whipsaws. It's not perfect, but the best thing I've seen come up with is that's great. All right, let's move on. Um, we're going to close this room in 15 minutes, so just time warning. Uh, my good friend uh, Mark Newman is in that. So we're going to do Mark and then Gnostic and then Gilbert. Mark, always good to hear from you, man. What's going on, Mark? Mark, are you there? Hey, George. Yeah, how you doing? So hey, I just wanted to touch on something. Um, well, Michael had mentioned it about uh, China, and I just I know it's been a lot of great, amazing technical talk in the room. Um, the one thing I find as interesting about China uh, and and I don't know, Michael, you want to juxtapose this into your into your thesis, but the end of the beginning of this week, right? J.P. Morgan said China was uninvestable, and then the next day, Hong Kong up big, tech covered, Didi up forty percent, Baba, etc. There is an element in the macro community thought process now that I also saw the other thing was China said they would um, go for uh, better accounting principles to make sure they prevent any delistings. It does sound like the whole Russia situation has woken up Xi to make sure his house is in order so that they don't suffer as Russia has in the international finance community. 
So I think it's interesting. And if Michael's models uh, call for it as a um, sort of a short-term bounce or whatever, still still a downside, I think it's super interesting as, you know, one of my oldest clients back when I was in Japan, he trading to Hong Kong, he goes, Newman, we call that the Hong Kong market equity fix. And it's amazing how in 25 years, things haven't really changed that much in that context. But I just thought it was interesting, right? JP Morgan said, no, it's over for China and the next day. Yeah, but, but, that was Mark, the but, yeah, but Mark, you know what? I, I'm really, I kind of like the guys at JP Morgan, but honestly, they've been on such a losing streak right now. It's unbelievable. I mean, they've been bullish on the U.S. market like the entire way down. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I just, it's sort of like Kramer. They should stop talking. It's embarrassing. You know, it's, 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 to quote was it the Mark? I can't remember the Mark Twain. Whatever. Always better, always better to remain silent, let people think you fool, than open your mouth and remove all reasonable doubt. You know, it's like it's like like really like. In in, in I don't know if you I, I don't know how long you've been in the room, Mark, but we had we had earlier comments. Michael Howe was crapping all over the the, the liquidity data out of China. Uh, we were referencing Ken Swang, who's a friend of this room, who follows Asia carefully, saying watch out, Chinese bond yields are going to go to new lows, and that's negative. So no. Nah. I don't think so. I, I I don't think so. So you think it's just a short term. That's what, yeah, I mean, Michael says there's no bottom. Michael Howe, who's a you know who's who's been more right than any strategist on the liquidity side of things, says there's no bottom. No, it's it, this is just a balance. I think. I don't know, Michael. You you're you're still bearish, aren't you? On China, Michael Belkin. Yeah. So here's the fork. I just doing it live. Today's close. FXI. It, they all look the same. You know, China X anything, but. This one is just here because it's close, U.S. close. Direction down, position halfway, down another six, seven weeks, up potentially second week in May. So it's just like everything else. Wants to go See. down. This is a bounce in a downtrend. Could bounce a little bit more, but it's not the bottom for this intermediate term move, probably, according to the model forecast, for another eight weeks. All right. Okay. We 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 be trying to about dead, dead pulp. In the interest of time, Mark. Stay yeah, on yeah. Sta- yeah, no, stay on stage. You got anything else to say? It's great. But let's just get off of China. All right, we're gonna do Gnostic and Gilbert. Gnostic, what's up, my friend? Hey there. You know, when I'm done, just take me down. Bring somebody else up. No, uh, sure. I, uh, all right, you got a question? Go 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 for it. You're yep. a good guy. Always happy to hear from you. Uh, I love Michael's stuff. Michael's doing short, mid, and long term. And what I'm finding in this discussion, which I would kind of, you know, please guys, don't argue. Short-term advice is long-term advice, and long-term advice is short-term advice. They're distinct trading patterns. If I'm investing, I'm doing it long-term. If I'm short-term, I sure as hell want to trade some of my long-term stuff if I know it's going to go down, because I can sell it, turn it over, make money, and uh, and I'm doing great, even though I'll be trading against myself because, you know, short-term down. And I've made more money on the bounces in a long-term investment than I have on anything else. Yeah, Michael's no, stuff does it. Yeah, I, I think it's all true. I think it depends. Like, if you're watching the screens like you do, that's fine. But for, like, some of the average guys, you know, the average individual in the room where it's like, I don't want to deal with changing every week, every day, every month. Tell me what I should do for the next, you know, six months or a year. Exactly, yes. You know, so I think it's multiple time frames, horses for courses. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the average guy is not going to be sitting in front of the, the terminal watching it and trying to do a 24-hour trade or even a, a one-week trade. But, Michael, yep. I have a question for you. Uh, when we were doing the smoothing analysis, Kuznets, Kondreti of you know all the Russian wave theory and all the rest of the stuff, what we used to do is combine them. And some of the effects of that, sort of like wave theory, uh, combining a long-term up with a mid-term up with a short-term up, 
gave us a tremendous boost in in saying all three are saying up right now like hell and at the bottom when somebody when something was going to turn and you get a down 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 i mean the down was really violent and vicious do you put out anything that actually combines the three of them to say you know this is going to be an exacerbated move anyway that's my main question yeah um in the report i make both sense the weird thing about the report is it's not a broken clock you know and and but other people really value it, so it changes. Yeah, Michael, changes. Michael, yeah, Michael, and, Michael, hold on, hold on one second. Michael, hold on one second. Is it just me who hears Michael breaking up, or can everyone else hear him clearly? No, I he's breaking yeah, up. I hear it too. Yeah. Yeah, my, Michael, I don't know if you moved in the house. Let me try moving. How's this? Is that any better? Hello. Yeah, that's Hello? Much, that's much that's much, much better. better. Go ahead. Yeah, go, go start over. Okay, sorry Michael. about go that. Ahead. Yep. Okay, so um, okay. The, so the Belkin report um, is not a broken clock. And um, I basically condense what the forecasts say into my narrative on the front page. And I say, it's time to change. So when it's time to change, um, as you suggested, it's when all the different cycles kind of match up together. In some, it's not always exactly the same, but some um, version of that. And, uh, you know, something else you said, like, so you can make money on the long side in bull markets. So if you just look at the daily trading range of something intraday, there's a, there are like four or five bull or bear, bull or bear markets on in the intraday moves every day. And that is not what I focus on at all. You know? So to me, I, I'm, I'm sort of clueless about uh, short. I used to do things, short-term trading stuff when I was at Solomon brothers and, and I had some models for that, but that is not, my specialty at all. So I, I, I would, um, I, I try to tell people how to ride through those moves and, and have conviction from point A to point B on intermediate and long-term moves. Yeah, that, that's more or less what I was thinking. So to me, the, to me, a short term in the terms of this room would be something like holding on for a couple of weeks to a month, midterm, three to six months, long-term, many years. And those are kind of the cycles that I'm looking at to see the combination to see whether you're getting accelerated upward or or downward. So a, a bear market within a bull market sort of thing or a bull within a bull sort of thing. Yeah. I, okay. So that's what I'm looking for in May. Starting in May, I would say um, the way it looks now, of course, that can change as time goes on. But my my general viewpoint looking through the binoculars and the forecast is we go down we bottom in May, and then there's a chance for a sustainable countertrend move up after a further liquidation. So that's tentative. That's a tentative view, but um, that I wouldn't trade for anything but short-term moves on the long side until May, the way it looks currently. That's great. Thanks, Michael. Thanks, Michael. You can Gil take me down, George. No, it's already stayed there, Nostic. It's fine. Uh, all right. So we got Gilbert and. Uh Kunal, I, I hold on one second, Gilbert. Kunal, I recognize you as a speaker, so uh, we're, we're trying to. All right, so it's going to be Gilbert and then Kunal. Gilbert, my friend, good to see you. What's up, Gilbert? Hi, George. Thank you very much for the opportunity to speak and hear what this amazing guest has to say. So, Michael, early you pointed out the fact that the generals of the Nasdaq has yet to fall, and I mean Tesla, Amazon, Apple. NVIDIA. The question is, what your model suggests 
as the indicative of the deterioration process of those stocks, especially, from here to your 10 period weekly uh, view of the market. And if your model can has any insight about what can happen at midterm of that 10 period weekly period you use. And thank you very much for your time. We really appreciate it and uh, I'll be listening. Okay. Uh, so I think those large cap stocks, they've been, they've underperformed definitely. So I have an equal weight index of FANG stocks and it's been a dog for a while, but not it's not nearly anything like what's happened to the cloud software stocks. So I think just conceptually, if I have to overlay a narrative with the idea that the, that the top largest cap stocks could fall in capitulation. It would be people just surrendering. They start getting outflows and they get, they get tired of selling Shopify, you know, or they've sold it all. They've sold all their Shopify and, and Datadog and DocuSign and everything, you know, Zoom, and they don't have any of those left. All they have left to sell is <laughs> like Apple. So um, <laughs> I think it's, a, it's sort of a co complete capitulation where, and by the way, so that would kill the NASDAQ. So I have an underperformed signal for the, the NASDAQ NDX versus the S&P. And of course, those stocks are the stocks that have held up the NASDAQ, although NASDAQ's been underperforming in this decline. So I think that will be the sign of capitulation. Conceptually, this is what I'm, narrative I'm trying to overlay with what the model forecast is saying. And like I said, the downside is huge. And like, so whereas for the NASDAQ NDX, it's only 26% to the 200 week average. Um, Tesla 59% down, Apple 42% down, NVIDIA 55% down, AMD 44% down. So I, I think that probably this, there's stale longs for a lot of funds. And if they start getting outflows, which I'm predicting, that's what the model forecast for flows looks down. So somehow something the the something's going to scare the the great uh, um, you know the great consensus that has bought stocks relentlessly and bought every dip because it's worked for the last two years um, until lately. Something is going to turn that faucet off, and the water is going to start flowing the other way. And then, <laughs> so I think there could be. A <laughs> <laughs> well, those are really the easiest source of liquidity, aren't they? Yeah. <laughs> so that's, that's can, can I can I ask you directly about one of them? Because for some reason, I did not hear you talk about Tesla in specific. No, no. Tesla? Tesla? <laughs> are you serious? Tesla? Tesla's number on. one. I, I have this new toy. You tell me if the sound is any good. This is Tesla. Hold on. Hold on. There you go. Hello. <laughs> Tesla seems like easier as it goes lower. Yeah, my, 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 Michael's saying Tesla to 500. And Gilbert, if you uh, look at my Twitter feed, Michael sent a few charts earlier this afternoon. I tweeted them out. He cited, we don't want to get individual names, but he did point out a few of the large cap tech names, things like Tesla, NVIDIA, Apple, et cetera, et cetera, and particularly the 200-week average. He was saying Tesla's got 510 written on it. So um, I, I personally feel very strongly, very strongly, 
the Tesla, you know, over under. I mean, Newman, I'll ask you. If you were to buy a one touch option for ten to one payout, one touch put, this is for Newman. One one touch put option on Tesla between now and the end of the year. Like or, or over under, over under. What's the over under on a on a Tesla per year for for low low print this year? Six hundred, five hundred, four hundred. Where how low do you go, Mark? Well, I, I think it gets easier as it goes lower, right? Because what's worked for Tesla is the stock price for so many people for so long. Right. And so once it stops working, then it has to really go the other way. So I, I you know, look, um, Michael said or someone said five hundred. I mean, at the end of this cycle, I think it's even way lower than that. Sure. But in this in this twelve month or well, whatever nine months left. Yeah, I was looking. I had I I kind of had. You know, five, uh, four fifty, five hundred as a right. one-touch uh, we're, area. We're, okay, we're we're in the same area code. That's fine. That's fine. I mean, I think the bigger point, rather than getting it down to just Tesla per se, is the bigger point Michael was making. It's rotation. It's it's you know, time to come for the generals. But I, I barfed. I threw up my mouth a little bit saying that just because you know, who would ever call Tesla a general? Like, what has the world come to? All right, the Tesla is considered a general. Like Michael, that is just like so screwed up. <laughs> you know, the generals, excuse me, you know, or, you know, Tesla, you know, an auto stock on 20 times revenues, that's a general. I mean, that just shows you how messed up the investor class is. I'm sorry. I can't control myself. I mean, Mark, I mean, and, and Michael, Michael, you don't know Mark. You guys got to get to know each other. Well, Michael, I had a question. Did you work with Craig Chudler in, at Solomon Smith Barney back in the day when he was the Japan guy? Uh, don't recognize the name. I was there. Um, 86 to uh, end of 91. I, oh, I've okay. been doing the belt. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. And, and Mark, what you need to know is Michael famously was the guy who on the weekly Solomon Brothers uh, technical report was saying it's going to zero, it's going to zero, it's going to zero. He was the guy. So, um, so yeah, so, 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 so Michael, uh, Mark did time in Tokyo. He broke Japanese equities for in the 90s. He grew up on the Japanese bear market. So, so right, we, right. Should, we, we should, we, 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 we should all get together at some point. But That'd be awesome. Uh, yeah, really. All right. So let's see who's left here. So, uh, Jeff Garbaz, are you still there? I don't know if Jeff is still there. All right. Um, three aces, you haven't said anything. Yeah, I'm here. Is, George, I'm here. Yeah, yeah. Him. Jeff, what's, what's, what's Tesla look like to you from, the, from through the lens of the Erlanger work? Yeah, hang on. Let me pull it up. It is. I mean, the headlines coming out of the auto industry couldn't be ugly, I'll tell you that. Um, well, the tech rank, we rank it from 10% to 100%. It's at 20%. And the short intensity is 41%. It's 0.93 days. So that is a negative. But it is kind of, I got to say, it is kind of basing here. And it's it's in a put squeeze now. So... It could go higher. It could go back to a thousand pretty easily, I think, if this rally went a couple more days. Just on the put squeeze. So, for people that don't know what a put squeeze is, a put squeeze occurs when a stock has been pounded. And the way we look at it, we look at four things open interest, premiums, money flow, and the total number of contracts to trade over the last 10 trading days. So, like the last two weeks. And when we bring it all together, and we don't do it on an average basis either. We do it on a median. So so to get excess put activity or call activity, it, it has to be kind of consistent um, as opposed to one day, you know, being the uh, the, the deal that kind of moves the whole thing. So, uh, George, I'm actually a little more positive on it. 
Hey, George, do you mind if I ask Mr. Belkin a few um, few questions? Hey, uh, Mike, it's um, Three Aces here. Um, I'm just yeah, curious. Hi. Yeah, hi there. Um, I, you, you just absolutely just put together the most brilliant uh, opening remarks there. I, I don't think I, that's why I haven't said anything. I just couldn't possibly, you know, come up with anything that would be more just perfect. And I really appreciate that. Um, don't, so, don't jinx me. <laughs> no, I know, I know, I know. I know. Well, for the home gamers, you know, we're just sitting here hanging on for dear life and to hear somebody nail it like that the way I've been thinking about it, you know, it just makes me actually feel very good one way or another. Um, so, okay. yeah, thank you. Um, now, you know, the dollar, I'm, I'm an international uh, mining CEO and everything is dollars and currencies. You know, dollars... Dollars, currencies, commodities, that's my game. And, you know, I've never seen uh, commodities, namely um, namely um, oil in this case. I forget about the, the nickels who are just, that's just a whole nother ball of wax. But particularly oil move the way it has uh, in the face of a strong dollar like this. I'm just curious in your work there, do you have any song and dance about how to, maybe use the dollar, look at the dollar or the relationships with the dollar. And is there any insight that you have on that there? Thank you. Sure. Um, you're right. It, this has been a strange move. So I have gold and the dollar as long as at the moment, gold is way more of a stronger signal. The dollar is kind of a weak signal. Um, on the basis of like the DXY index, it's stronger versus some EM currencies. So, and that kind of fits with a sort of global mayhem scenario where if the dollar strengthens versus, well, obviously Russian ruble, that's been a, a, a winning position, but there's also um, uh, EM basic currencies, Mexican peso, Hong Kong dollar uh, has started blowing up. It was at the bottom of the range and um, dollar versus that. And now it's... Uh, the dollar strengthening a lot, so there's weakness in Hong Kong dollar. I, I would say that overall, my my confidence level in the dollar rallying is mild. And the, to answer your question more specifically, I have gold versus the DXY up, which is with they're both up at the same time. It's almost unheard of. Like when when have you heard of gold going up the same time as a dollar? So it's kind of a strange scenario, but we're in a strange, um, you know, global situation. So risk off moves out of risky assets. And for some reason, the dollar is a, a less dirty shirt than some of the other currencies out there. Although, you know, conceptually, I have to say what the policies of sanctioning everybody and seizing their assets and stuff, when you're the reserve currency of the world, whoa, that is like super dangerous. Like, you know, what are what are they thinking in, you know, in Malaysia or, you know, they decide all of a sudden, you know, you can't have your foreign exchange reserves anymore because you, um, you know, that's not a proper thing to do for the manager of the reserve currency of the world to make people feel insecure about holding your currency. So can, um, fundamentally, I'm not a big friend of the dollar, but I think it could catch a, 
risk off move mild not it's not like a huge rally it's just sort of signals there i can't ignore it but the commodity signal is stronger mostly for metals okay and grains too but it's it's not early so these have been longs for me all the way up so these are signals that have worked and if the economy falls off a cliff at some point this year um all this stuff could reverse big time not not, not the precious metals but things like the right. grains so that's that's in the back of my mind. It's a it's getting late in the commodity up signal for some of this stuff that's not uh, gold and silver, and um, it look out if the economy uh, hits a brick wall, then we could be in a completely different um, ball game. Thank you, thank you, thank you. That, appreciate that just appreciate. absolutely nailed it for me. Thank you, Mike. Yeah, yeah. All right, we're coming to the last question of the night. That's going to be it, um, Abe. Always good to see you. I'd appreciate it if you could keep it tight because I really want to close the room. I was going to close it, but then I saw you were there. So I said, all right, I'll let him up. But please keep it tight. My good friend, Abe, what's up? Thanks, buddy. Uh, you're a gentleman. Thank you, George. Um, I just got excited when you were talking about metals. Um, so I just wanted to give you guys an update. Um, I did give you guys the signal to buy X. Um, and it's... Yeah, yeah. Hey, hey, I know, hey, I know. Yeah, we want to hear... Just, hey, hey, wanna, just keep it okay. tight. Okay, here's the deal. Deal is that the... Uh, the metals still have a bid, and what I'm seeing is uh, metals are still on fire. Where uh, uh, prices are being uh, changed almost every three days now, and this is for iron ore, uh, steel, uh, coal, met coal, all of that, the entire complex. Because I bring a lot of stuff in from Eastern Europe and Ukraine, all that stuff's on fire. And by the way, there's still structural uh, supply shortages everywhere. Um, so just FYI on the ground, forget what the market is telling you. Cause I'm on the ground and I move this stuff. Uh, it is literally on fire and you can't find it. Can't get it. Even if you want it, good luck to you. That's where we are right now in terms of, uh, metals. And as George knows, I've been doing this for 30 years and I moved shiploads of this shit. So trust me when I tell you, um, there's, we, we got it. There's issues out there. Now, if the economy corrects, which obviously, you know, all of this is is uh, is quite fortuitous. If it happens, sure, you're obviously you're going to you're going to see a little bit of demand destruction there. However, I'm just letting you know, uh, structurally on the ground, uh, we have massive shortages because of Ukraine and Belarus. And those two compose a huge proportion of, again, uh, iron ore, steel products, anything to do that feeds into those two are structurally in a supply deficit at the moment. Okay, so I'll stop there. I just thought I'd give you the latest update as of this morning. That's great, Abe. Always appreciate it. That's wonderful. All right, listen, guys. I mean, this is like sick. This is worse than like, you know, golf being a time suck or football games being a time suck. One of the questions, someone had a great question in a DM a few a couple months ago. They said, how do you guys do this without having your wives get pissed off at you? Because, like, you know, <laughs> we're, we're at two hours and 20 minutes. This thing could go on for four or five hours. I mean, and the thing is, like, nobody's leaving. This is awesome. All right, so listen, Michael, I hope, you know, I hope as your first time here in, in the Twitter space, you it was okay for you um, and, and, and you'll consider coming back. You have just knocked the ball out of the park. I mean, and not only that, it's not just you knocked the ball out of the park, but the number of people you attracted to the room, I mean – Seriously, Michael, it's like murderer's row. It's like it's like Hall of Fame technicians here, and it's because of you. So, Michael, I thank you. I thank you for your wisdom. Longtime friend. Wish you only the best. 
This has been phenomenal. I hope uh, you'll come back and mean if you don't want to speak and just listen to some of the rooms and you can, you know, comment as you see fit. But in any event, big, big round of applause for Michael. Uh, this has been great. We'll do another room on the weekend. Don't know what it's going to be yet. We'll figure it out. Um, you know, stay safe, my friends. And uh, Michael, again, thank you and good night, everyone. Good night. Thank you, George. Good night. Thanks, George. Bye. Bye. Thanks, George.